He says an alcoholic is someone who's drinking. He's having an adverse effect on any area of their life, and they drink anyway. He said if it's hurting you financially, you drink anyway, you're an alcoholic. If it's hurting your family and you drink anyway, you're an alcoholic. If you, it's hurting your career and you drink anyway, you're an alcoholic. He said, because if any of those things are going on, that means the alcohol is in control and you are not. Now, are you an alcoholic? And with trembling lip, for the first time in my life, I said, yes, I am. And then the next thing he said to me, he said, if you want to live, you're going to have to make sobriety the number one part of your life for the rest of your life. And the only way anyone knows of you having a chance of having that happen to you for sure long term is by going to and participating in the program and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Next thing he said to me was, being an alcoholic is not your fault, but it's your responsibility to do something about it. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 64. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is 1010 of the year 2000. I created this show to spread hope across the world that recovery from alcohol and drug addiction is possible. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. Please remember that this program is solely supported by listeners like you. All donations will be reinvested in the podcast to pay our monthly operating expenses. You can support us by visiting our website, SoberShares.com, and clicking the donate button and follow the prompts. There's also a clickable donation link in the show notes of the episode that you are listening to right now. Please contact me directly at mike at SoberShares.com with any questions or comments. Thank you for joining us. And now it's time to meet our guest. I'm going to turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. My name is Roy Heron. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is April 6, 1987. All right, Roy. Glad you're here. How many years is that? 36 years. I want to try something new with the podcast. I haven't done this before. I'm going to read listener feedback before we get started on the episode. So let's get right into that. This is from Alistair C. It says, hi, Mike. My name is Alistair, and I'm an author based in Salt Lake City. I recently happened upon your podcast, Sober Shares, on Audible. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is June the 9th of 2005, and I got sober through the AA program. Unfortunately, after a couple years, I just kind of slowly drifted away from AA and eventually lost touch with it. By some miracle, I didn't relapse, but I definitely lost my spiritual connection and over time became, as they say, restless, irritable, and discontent. And I was so busy with life that I really didn't even notice it. Then, most recently, some very challenging events kind of took me out at my knees. Without my spiritual connection, I found myself floundering. This is where I discovered sober shares. I have also since returned to the rooms, but I can't tell you how much your podcast has helped me between the meetings. I am nearly 18 years sober now, and I'm just realizing that AA isn't just about not drinking. It's about a spiritual connection, and your podcast drives that home in exactly the way I need it to. Every guest you have on the show says something that resonates with me. And even when you share pieces of your own experience, I can see myself. I've recently spent countless hours driving around or sitting in my living room, getting to know God again through Sober Shares, and I can't tell you how much it has helped me. 
I think that what you are doing is nothing short of a miracle. And if there's ever a time that you feel it doesn't matter, I want you to, to refer to this email and remember that it certainly made my life better. And in a way, it saved it. Sober Shares has restored my connection with AA and with God and reminded me how much I need both. It's reminded me that I'm helpless and that God is in charge and that everything is going to be okay. I'm in a better place now. I'm okay today. And that's solely due to God, AA, and Sober Shares. If I hadn't happened upon your podcast, I don't know if I would have found my way back to Alcoholics Anonymous and ultimately back to God. So thank you. I hope you never stop doing what you do. And I hope you know how much you're helping those who listen to the podcast. Be well and keep up the great work. All the best, Alistair. That was one of the coolest emails I've ever got. And I'm super, super proud and excited to read that on the show. So thank you for that. Our next feedback is from Jen. Hey there, Mike. Thank you so much for passing my message along to Bobby B. I was able to join my old home group in Dallas on a Zoom meeting today, and it was wonderful. So grateful for all that you're doing for our community. I have so much gratitude for my recovery that I was truly schooled in Dallas, Texas. Keep doing what you're doing and sharing the message. Know that your message is being heard far and wide. My sister heard this episode in Sarasota, Florida, and forwarded it to me and my other sister as we were all in recovery over 25 years. She said, I heard a great podcast today, and Mike is an awesome interviewer, and this guy Bobby sounds pretty solid as well. I listened and quickly knew that it was my friend Bobby from my old home group in Dallas, Texas. I couldn't believe it. Thanks again for helping me make an invaluable connection and reminding me of where I came from. Best wishes, Jen. And how that email came to, to be was the last episode that we recorded with Bobby B., Jen heard that, hadn't seen Bobby or heard from Bobby in a long time, reached out to me. I forwarded that message to Bobby, and they were able to get back in touch with each other after several years of being apart. So this podcast reunited a couple of old friends. I asked Roy H. before the podcast recording session today if he wanted to give out his email address in case somebody wanted to get in touch with him after we're done recording this episode. So I think this would be a great time for Roy to give his contact information if you want to reach him after you listen to this episode, what's your email, Roy? The word bridge, B-R-I-D-G-E, the numeral six, bridge six at me.com, me.com. Okay. Thank you for that, Roy. You can reach out to Roy after we record this episode and ask him any questions or give him any comments. This next female, or this next, uh, excuse me, this next feedback is from Corey. This podcast provides a vital and essential resource for those of us in recovery. We need to be connected to one another through our stories and shared experiences. This podcast delivers in a simple and straightforward format. Thanks be to Mike and all who share. This next one is from John, J-O-N. Mike, I appreciate your work on the show. I am a truck driver that drives from Central Texas to Denver every week starting in November. I've been sober since 2-12 of 2018. And until, and until about two months ago, I had really been struggling on the road. The places I end up staying are normally in the middle of nowhere, and I have had trouble finding meetings on the road because our driving times and whatnot. I stumbled upon your podcast after the eighth time of listening to Joe and Charlie. I love the format you use and the way you keep the speakers moving through their stories. Told my sponsor the other day he never lets them stay drunk too terribly long. Ha! Nothing beats face-to-face -face AA, 
But when I'm gone three to four days on the road driving my 18-wheeler truck, it sure helps me stay connected to the toolkits and gives me helpful nudges to practice the program in different ways. My wife has recently started listening as well, and she says she loves it. At my home group, at my home group in Brownwood, known as the Browntown, Browntowners, let me read that again. At my home group in Brownwood, known as the Browntowners, I had the opportunity to hear Jenny L. tell her story before finding your podcast. Then about a month later, I started hearing her episode and called a bunch of my buddies to tell them that we got to hear a real AA celebrity. Ha ha. Sorry for being so long-winded. Been meaning to reach out to you for a while now. I recently started listening from the beginning episode again and heard you talk about how truck drivers driving down the road, listening to your podcast, and I felt called to reach out and let you know that's exactly what I'm doing, driving my 18-wheeler down the road, listening to your show as I move from state to state. I love how God can plant a seed years earlier during our addiction that sprouts into a blessings for others later on in sobriety. Keep up the good work, John P. This next listener feedback comes to us from Melbourne, Australia. Hey, Mike, I listened to a few of your podcasts, and I really enjoyed them. I decided to start from the first one. The stories where people have come from and where they are today is amazing. I listen, I listen in my car every time I drive now. I sometimes get emotional at the start and are uplifted by the end. Keep it up. This next one comes to us from Ruth D., Love these podcasts and love the experience, hope, strength, and inspiration the speakers share. The next one is from Amanda D. I listened to this on my way to work today, and it was really good. The next one comes from Angela I. Thank you for letting me join the Sober Shares Facebook group. I recently discovered your podcast, and I am listening to, and I am listening to all of them, oldest to newest. I identify with so much of what I've heard so far, and have shared so much of what I've heard on your show at meetings already. I'm excited to keep listening. And the last listener feedback today is from Mo Shell. She says, Mike, I love the show. This song could be a soundtrack to your podcast. It's called More Church Than Church by Unspoken featuring Walker Hayes. If you've not had a chance to hear it, take a listen. I think you'll relate to it and like it. Thanks for all you do. I did listen to that song and I do like it. So thank you for the feedback, Michelle. Mo Shell. I received donations this week from John Kirtland. I use his full name because he's a friend of mine, and he would not mind if I used his full name. I love you, John. Thank you. Also from Amanda D., Red S., Stan W., David S., Colin H., and Deborah S. And now it's time to turn our attention back to our featured guest today, Roy H. from the Preston Group in Dallas, Texas. Let's start off by having you tell us about the early years of your life, what did your family look like and where you were born? All right. Um, I was born in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I am the youngest of three uh, children. Um, <clears throat> I was born in 52, which makes me soon to be 71 years old. Um, I have a sister six years older than me and a brother 12 years older than me. We were all... Uh, I mean, there, North Highlands Elementary, where I went to the elementary school, uh, there was, um, when I was in the first grade, my sister had just left 
and my brother graduated. So basically, there was one member of my family at that school for like 18 years. <laughs> They're like, here comes another one. Uh, I mean, and uh, so, uh, so, uh, so exactly. So they, uh, they, I, I was known, and uh, uh, the neighborhood I grew up in was uh, was a very uh, friendly neighborhood. My my dad worked in a oil refinery, and a blue collar neighborhood. One of those neighborhoods where people let their doors open and kids would wander from one house to the next. And uh, that's um, that was where um, I grew up, uh, was very involved in church from the get go uh, early on in life. And that was something that was always important to me. Uh, I would say that, you know, some, I hear a lot of times people in a talking about having negative experiences related to religion. Well, that wasn't the case for me. I mean, I, 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 you know, I became a Christian when I was 11 years old, and that was a very real experience for me. And uh, church was my one of my favorite places to go growing up. Um, um, in relation to alcohol, neither of my parents ever drank. I never saw alcohol in my house. Um, I would be exposed to alcohol with, uh, around other people. Now, one of the things I wasn't aware of is that um, was that there was a lot of history of alcoholism throughout my family on both sides of my family. But it's kind of one of those things that people wouldn't talk about. You no. discovered that much later in yeah, hindsight. Yeah, it's like um, it was like you know my mother, who I think I would say my mother was. I've, I've never met a person more kinder or considerate than what my mother was. That's awesome. I mean, she, my mother was the type. She died in ninety one, but 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 uh, she was the type of person you, know, you could have shown up at my at her house at three o'clock in the morning knocked on the door and said, tell her, ma'am, you've never met me, but I'm a friend of your son's and I was passing through and wonder if I could stay here. She would be unfazed by that. She, <laughs> she did it. Another thing too, I would say about my mother too, is I, I've never heard her say a critical or judgmental thing about another human being. I mean, she just, uh, she just really exuded, uh, uh, love to people, uh, uh, some of the wisdom I had, I think I, I, I picked up from her, the way she lived her life, was that we, she, it's like she made the decision, she had a choice. I can either judge people or I can enjoy people. I think I'm going to go with enjoying people. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of the way she lived her life. That's so cool. Yeah. Did you enjoy your childhood or was it a struggle? It was great until about 11, 12 years old. Oh, yeah. What grade is that? Uh, finished the sixth grade, getting ready to go to seventh grade. Everything went good for me until third grade. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, some things started happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the, th th that were some really severe traumas that happened to me all the way through my teens. But, and we'll preface that with talking about that with, um, with a point that while uh, the, the, the difficult things I went through in my teens and was primarily around my relationship with my dad uh, created a lot of problems for me in life, I don't really think of that as creating my, causing me to be an alcoholic. Um, Do you want to talk about those things or skip over yeah, those we'll things? Yeah, we'll talk about them. Yeah, that's a real important part of, of recovery. And, Let's and, hit them now. We're right there. Yeah, well, um, you know, the, the, it, but just to say this about the drinking, you know, I didn't get drunk until I was 19 years old. Okay. And um, 
the way I equate um, alcoholism as it's manifested, manifested itself in me was that, um, you know, they, you might remember in school, they had little, little science project people do, you know, where they mix baking soda and vinegar and it makes this chemical reaction. Is that the volcano one? Yeah, the volcano one. You I know? did that every year. Yeah, that was really good. Well, the, well, well, this is the deal with me. This is the way I see my alcoholism. You put alcohol in me and alcoholism, it's on. It's rolling. It's happening, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, and that, I think that was probably going to happen whether I had the experiences I had as a child or not. But, but uh, things started to unravel whenever I, when I finished the sixth grade, it was the school had just finished and I had a, uh, a Saturday morning and uh, I made the decision I was going to go over to a friend's house and I went over there to visit him. I didn't tell anybody where I was going, which wasn't that unusual, I guess, at that time. And my friend and I decided to go bowling. So we rode our bicycles so about two, a mile or so away and went bowling. And I come back home, and uh, I've been gone by this time about four hours, and they didn't know where I was. And I saw my dad, who I had seen his anger and rage before, uh, moving, coming towards me down the driveway along the side of our house. And he had this fig tree switch in his hand, and I knew what was up. So, um, and so I ran, I took off. I was a very fast kid and I got away. And then I, um, after I, uh, after leaving, I, I just hung out and I stayed away for about the rest of the day. And then that evening I started to make my way back to the house and said, maybe thinking, well, maybe things have calmed down now, or maybe something, whatever. And what I got was even worse. He, my dad grabbed me in the street put me in a headlock, started punching me in the face, threw me back into my house, and uh, he just started wailing on me with his fig tree branch uh, just indiscriminately. Uh, and it went on for a while. And uh, whenever the fig tree branch was only left to be about a three or four, a stick in his hand, small stick in his hand, he went and got another one and kept going. Uh, just full-blown rage. And uh, when it was done... Uh, my mother, who had been trying to stop him the whole time, she said, look, we need to take him to the hospital. You've really hurt him. And uh, they didn't. And I think something in his head went, even back then, I take this kid to the hospital right now. They see what I've done to him. I'm in trouble. You know, the, then, then, then that, that episode was over. A couple of days later, I was talking to the, 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 the dad uh, that lived next door to us, and uh, I told him, I said, you know, my daddy hates me. And he told me he didn't. It was, it was extremely, extremely, but I was convinced that the only reason that happened to me because my dad had to really hate me. And I went on. And uh, we'd go to church, and I was in music, I sang in choir. I was youth choir president. I did a lot of different stuff. Church was a place I could go where I, where I felt okay, where I felt safe, you know, and felt good. But, and I'd get, I'd get positive affirmations, but I would go back home and things were just going bad. Now, one of the things I wasn't aware of that was my dad, had, at that point in time, had gotten involved in an extramarital affair. All that happened when I was 12 years old. And, and by the time when I was 16, they ended up getting a divorce. That's where it landed. 
and when my parents divorced, I mean, people, people didn't talk to me. I mean, you know, and that was at a time where I didn't know anybody else whose parents were divorced. The, the divorce happens and the, the, we were, you know, and this whole time, like we're going to church, we're sitting in church, you think and act like everything's fine. And then I go home and it's, it's just, you know, the, the last night that I was, I came, it was a Sunday night after church. I come home, I'm here by mother and father. He's yelling at my, my mother. He's yelling at my mother in the hallway and all. And, uh, he's just going crazy. This is a guy that hadn't had anything to drink. And then the next morning, I got ready, got up, got ready to go to school. And my mother came to me and she said, look, I'm not going to, she told me she was leaving. She said, I'm going to my sister, to her sister's house, my aunt's house. She said, it's up to you. You want to stay here and live with your dad? You can, you want to come with me. I was immediately, I am not staying with this guy. This is crazy. So I left. And then the, as the pr- procedure process for divorce went, started going on. I spent the next several months staying with uh, friends, staying with friends that were, were lived closer to school so I could get to school every day. My dad just went berserk. He, uh, they were having to get me out of school early every day because he would be wandering around trying to uh, accost me. Uh, I had a, uh, a job in the neighborhood grocery store that I went to and um, my dad would come in there and would uh, would confront me and while I'm stock, you know stocking groceries and get to the point that the owner of the grocery store told him he had to leave. He just was he was just so 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 angry and just saying things to me. He said things to me like um, he told me that uh, that when I was a baby he had to hide the knives from my mother because my mother wanted to kill me. Um. So, uh, you know, I just, and I just kept going. And I think at some point in time, you know, the thing about stuff that's traumatic I look at today, it isn't so much about what happened. It's about the conclusions you come to about yourself and the world when you walk through that stuff. You know, I graduated from high school, went on to college at LSU, and was uh, studying vocal music. I was singing, uh, 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 training to sing things like uh, singing opera, et cetera, stuff like that. So, are you still interested in music now? Oh yeah, but play still play guitar a lot. Okay, yeah, guitar is one of the things I love to do. Do you like acoustic or electric? Acoustic, yeah. I got, I have, uh, I have right now three acoustic guitars. I have a nylon classical. I have two Martin guitars, two different ones. They're both uh, custom shop guitars. Uh-huh. Uh, Can we give a shout out to your guitar people? Oh uh, uh, yeah. Tone shop guitar is a great place to go here. If you want to buy a guitar. Tone, tone shop? Tone shop right over here in Addison. Yes, sir. Okay. Shout out to the tone shop. Yeah. Great guys. Yeah. I'm wearing a shirt right now. I can fun. see that. It says tone shop, yeah. acoustic and electric guitars. And amp. so if you're listening to this podcast, you want to go by the tone shop, we tell them we give them a shout out. Yeah, sure. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, you know, I, so, and I look, all through high school, I was, a, from time to time, I'd be around people that were drinking, you know, and it was, it never, it always looked very unattractive to me. It just seemed like that is not something I really want to do. 
And plus, you know, I'm in this Baptist environment and that's my social environment and all. And, and you know, the only time I'd see booze would be uh, somebody would be uh, some guy in, in high school would have a, a six pack on you know, the in the back seat of a car and it's lukewarm and it smells bad. And I just it just they were putting salt on the rim and stuff like this. Now it's kind of like this. This this is this it makes this has not, not has nothing to offer me. One of the things I think the kind of milestone for me was on my graduation night, you know, instead of going to prom and doing things that a lot of people do, I went with a church group to go bowling all night. And uh, you love bowling. Do you still love bowling? No, not really. Okay, it's the second time you've talked about yeah, bowling. Yeah, I just come up, yeah. But, but now, anyway, the thing was, uh, the girl, there was a girl that was a friend that and I t- and we were talking about our future you know it's graduation talk about our future and I just said to her just not out of stone po- a point of uh, self-pity or anything but just as a being factual I told her I said I really had I really doubt if anybody was ever going to love me that's how I thought 18 years old and then I go to college and I go into church still and on a Sunday night after church, I went with some guys to Shakey's Pizza. They got a pitcher of beer, and I got a mug, and it was a frozen, the frozen pitchers, a frozen mug. Thank God. And it, you know, all that stuff goes down like water. Then, right? Like a well, well, we had a pitcher of beer between three of us, and so I had a beer, a beer and a half, maybe two out of the out of the pitcher. And once we did that, the two other guys were done. Once I drank that much beer for the first time in my life. I got up promptly. I walked over and got a whole, another whole pitcher, and I drank it myself, a whole pitcher by myself. I, so I consumed a pitcher and change of beer in about 40 minutes. And I had never felt as good as I did at that moment in my life. It was awesome. And one of the things I noticed about myself was I was cognizant of the fact that I was legally drunk. Right? You know. But there was nothing about my behavior. I didn't have any slurred speech. I didn't have any slow, slow coordination or any of that stuff. I got sharp. I was sharper. You know, I heard a doctor once years ago in an A meeting talking about that certain alcoholics, and I think this is the type I am. Whenever I begin in my beginning of my drinking career, you know, at point oh eight you're legally drunk, right? At point one it used to be. Guys like me at the beginning of my career at if I drink myself to point one, point one two five, I get I get better. My my coordination improves. Everything about me gets crystal clear and sharp. You know, yeah. and so I left that experience and I drove home and I realized that you know I've been I'm driving fine. I could tell. You know, I'm hitting the turn signals. I'm doing everything exactly right. So. So after that first time I got drunk, I, uh, I did not see this as being a problem. My perception was, I have a gift here. I'm good at this. And whenever I do this, any other problems I have, any other emotional problems from traumas or anything else, it all goes away. I think a lot of us felt like that. Life is wonderful. I felt like that too. I hit that at 13 years old in my friend's garage and it changed my life. Your your childhood, 
a lot of the things that you were describing to me, I mean, I don't know those things about you. I'm hearing them for the first time. It sounds terrifying to me right. because your parents are supposed to be your safe place. They're supposed to protect you and they're supposed to supply, um, you know, provide stability. And I would be super scared if I was 12 years old and rolling all the way through 18 and stuff like that was happening to me. So I'm sorry that happened to you. I feel like that I agree with one thing that you said, or I believe you said this, is that your background and the things that happened to you is not what made you an alcoholic. I feel the same way because I've talked to a lot of people, and there was a lot of people that did not grow up in a house like yours. They grew up in a house different, and guess what? They've got a front row seat in Alcoholics Anonymous just like you. Right. I'm I'm of that ilk. You know, I'm in that position. My dad never went crazy and attacked me like that. Yeah. Let me ask you about the, and you can hit it now or hit it later in the arc of your story, but did you ever come to terms or any kind of resolution with your father or was it just always weird for a long time and then at some point he either fell out of your life or passed away? What happened with you and your dad? Well, um, we'll uh, let's go ahead and uh, fast forward into when I get sober and I'm 34 years old. We'll go back a little bit in the treatment and stuff a bit, but what happened was, you know, I just still kind of just dodged him, you know, and uh, he, uh, after the divorce, he remarried. His second wife was a wonderful lady, and um, I would go visit them from time to time. He had retired and was living in rural Mississippi, and, uh, and, and you know, one of the things that she said to him, and this is by, like, by the, when I'm like 28, 29 years old, she said, she told him, said, uh, she said to him, she goes, she told him, says, Roy doesn't think you care about him. And um, so what I just did was I would go through the, the required uh, motions of, of, of talking with him and contacting him, but, um, but just did not have a lot to do with him. Then I get sober April of 87. I've been sober in, in Father's Day of 88. I've been sober then, I guess, 15 months. And a lot of things had changed in my life, obviously. At that point in time, I'd, I hadn't had a drink in 18, about 17 months. I hadn't had a cigarette in seven months. I'm walking, I'm exercising. My life is having less and less resemblance to what I had before I got here. At this point in time, you know, I'm 34. My dad at this time is in his early, mid-70s. I'm at my sister's house in Dallas. I was there because I had just gotten hired by uh, an old friend, and I was about to get the best. I'm sober 18 months, 16 months. I'm getting the best job I've had probably in three or four years. So I'm all excited about that. So I'm at my sister's house, and it's Father's Day, and she wants to call him. I don't really want to talk to him. But she does one of these things where she's talking to him, Happy Father's Day. And she, well, Roy's here, so now I'm... I've got to get on the phone and say something. So I just get on the phone and say, hey, Daddy. Uh, hey, Dad, happy Father's Day. First thing he says to me, why are you changing jobs again? I'm just beside myself. I mean, my tongue gets, th- gets thick. You know, my mouth dries out. I'm hyperventilating. And I get off the phone, and I'm just furious. And I'm, the thing I think I'm mad at more than anything is myself because I'm sober. I've been sober over a year now. I'm doing everything I can do to, to put, move forward with a good life. And this guy in his 70s is in Mississippi, and I'm in Texas, and he says one thing, and I'm falling apart. I just, what is up, you know? 
So I go to a meeting in Dallas, and a lady that was a friend, I told her that was going on, and she referred me to freedom from bondage. You got to start praying for your dad, and you have to start ask God to give him everything in his life that you would ever want for for yourself. You got to pray it every day till you mean it. I started doing the prayer. I didn't want to, but I did. And after about a week or so, I started to uh, feel like I kind of meant it, maybe a minute. And after about two weeks, I started to get a little bit more at peace with myself about this whole deal. Well, God's timing thing is amazing. Right about then, my sister had had a plan to make a trip over to uh, to Louisiana, Mississippi, family and visit dad. And my sister and I in our conversations about our father and about all the different problems he had had and and. And all it occurred to us that his father, our grandfather, died before he was born. We don't, we knew nothing about this man who was our grandfather. It's like he didn't exist. So she, she made it a point. She was going to start asking him about his dad. And uh, so she goes to visit him, and we we start to. She, he starts to get questioned about his father, and he doesn't want to talk about it. And finally, here he is in his mid seventies, and. He starts to talk, and he starts to tear up about experiences he had. And he's feeling all this stuff about a guy who's been dead for 50 years. And he started talking about being cursed, cursed out at the, at, the, at the dinner table because he was breathing too loud when he was 10 years old. He told about him and his brother going to get their trumpets to play in the high school band, only to find that their dad had stolen their trumpets to pawn them off for money for drinking and gambling. And on and on and on. So between the, the knowledge about his life and the praying and the work I was doing in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, that was getting directed to the, here, I started just kind of look at him differently. Instead of looking at him as someone who had brought so much pain into my life, I started looking at him as someone like me who had had a lot of pain brought into his so shortly thereafter, the work, the new job I had had me go, to, go work down in Fort Lauderdale. I stopped off in Mississippi to visit him on the way. I walked into the room that he was in, and for the first time ever, I walked into the room where my dad was, and I felt okay. I felt okay. We, him and I decided, agreed when, we saw him, when I saw him that we needed to have a better relationship. So we started writing, we started talking on the phone. And about six months later, we started ending conversations with saying, I love you. And I felt like I'm in it. I am so glad that I had that experience. And I would have told anybody, utilize every resource you can find to give yourself the best quality sobriety you can have. Give a couple examples of that. Well, you know, people, you know, I had to, I went back, I had issues with anger and I had to go back to, I went back to therapists, talk about anger, you know, but I will tell you this, a lot of the problems we have, the solutions really are in this big book here. I mean, they are, I mean, that freedom from bondage thing, I mean, that, that's pretty spot on. I mean, it did well for me, yeah. but, but the thing was for my dad, I just con- kind of conclude with this about him at the end of his life. I mean, I, I, I felt so bad for him today. He's been gone a long time. Because he, he never got to experience real joy in his life. 
He never, he never, he was religious. He was a hardworking guy. I mean, uh, my dad would work circles around people and all refinery, all this stuff. And he cared about people. He just had such a low feeling about himself. And he was in so much emotional pain he never dealt with. And that was, that was finally exemplified in the way his life ended. You know, in the last year he was alive, he was 80 years old. He was turning 80 in, in, in 94. And in January that year, his second wife passed away. She's a wonderful lady. She died of Alzheimer's. My dad did a great job of taking care of her the last three years of his life. Her life, he he never left her side. Uh, I was really proud of him for that. But then we were rolling into his 80th birthday in May of uh, of 94. And we had plans. We were going to get a lot of people to get his house out in rural Mississippi and all. And about four weeks before uh, his birthday, he had a he was diagnosed as having a mild stroke. He was in the hospital a few days. Uh, he was still functioning, but it was a very mild stroke. But I'm sure it affected him somewhat. So I show up for his 80th birthday, and uh, the last time I saw him was at his 80th birthday, and I gave him a hug. And when I had my uh, when I had my head next to his ear, I said, "Daddy, I love you a whole bunch." He said, "Boy, I love you too." And so I left and came back. Uh, I had a conference to go to in San Francisco, and I went there. And then five days later, I get a call at 6 in the morning, that, that early that morning. My dad had gone out behind his house and blew his brains out. I did not know that. And I feel, uh, I just still feel so sad for him when I think about him. Because I've had those times in sobriety. You know, we all have these times in recovery where we walk, as I think it's June G says, we walk down the long, dark hall. You know, life comes at us here. It's not like we quit drinking and life becomes wonderful and, and nothing but, you know, uh, rose petals, et cetera. I mean, it's, it comes at you. I would say this about the things I, I finally took away. I was very angry with him again whenever he did this. My first, my first response to that was that I was extremely angry. And I was like, you son of a bitch. You've been putting us all through this emotional meat grinder all our lives, and you got to do this to us one more time. But then I just said, man, this is so sad. I felt so sad for him because I... Because I, I, I was thinking about what his feelings was at those last moments. Because I felt that before. And I think any of us who've been in recovery have felt that before. The, the thing I learned from that was, one, today, is that um, you, if you're in, in anyone listening uh, and you're in that dark place, I would tell you, Two things to consider. One, if you take your own life, you have no idea the impact you're having on the people around you. And number two, if you're not going to stick around, you have no idea what you're going to miss out on. Because what my dad didn't know was that a year later I'd be getting married. And less than two years after that, his first grandson, for me, was being born. If my dad had seen my oldest son, he would have been beside himself in joy. And he missed it. You just don't know what you're going to miss.
I know that was emotional for you and I'm sure for the listeners as well as myself, but I wanted to slide back to when you were in that Shakey's pizza parlor, you ordered that pitcher of beer, you felt good, you drove home accurately, you felt better in every way. Let's slide through, let's jump back to your early years and start sliding through the early years of your drinking career and kind of where that rolled into. I continued to, uh, I was going to college and uh, at LSU and I was, um, Doing, doing pr- pretty well in school. My drinking pattern was this. I, w- I was not wanting to, I would not get up and be craving alcohol. I would not be doing that. But anytime I drank, I drink a lot. I had a conversation with the uh, sponsee the other day, and they were, they were talking about uh, someone asked them if they could have one more drink. What would that one drink be? And I was, my, my initial thing was say, my initial response to that was, why in the world would I be even inter- remotely interested in having one drink? That's just not how I roll, you know? And I know that's about, look, for me and alcohol today, I mean, that's, that's how I'd be today. A glass of Chardonnay with some grilled fish, that's so boring sounding to me, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I never think about having, I would never think about having a drink. Think about having maybe 10, but, but, a, but a drink is just a waste of time because it just, that's, that's, that's that's not something I want to do. But uh, but I didn't get in trouble because of drinking. Okay. Yeah. And then um, after my sophomore year in college, at the end of my sophomore year in college, I uh, I would I was one I went to my junior year in '72, one hour shy of being cl- classified as a junior, so I was considered a third semester sophomore. 1972 was the last year of the draft. They drafted the lottery number 95. My lottery number was 95. As far as I know, no one besides me has been drafted in Baton Rouge since me. And so with draft notice in hand, I went to a Navy recruiter's office and joined the Navy. What were your thoughts about that when you walked in there? I was like... Well, they got the Navy recruiter said, well, congratulations, you beat the draft. And I was like, yeah, I don't feel like I beat the draft. I feel like this joined the Navy is what it feels like here. But I went in, I went to boot camp in Orlando, went to my first ship, you know, home ported in Long Beach. And seven months later, we were on a Westpac cruise. It's Western Pacific. And in that, on that cruise, I went to Hong Kong, Okinawa, four or five different cities in Japan, Guam, Philippines. It was great because... It was, it was great. I mean, look, this, this is what the transition that happened to me, okay, on that Westpac cruise. Up until that point, even though I was drinking some in college and stuff like this, I still kind of pretty well had this, uh, this persona, this, 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 this image and this, this character that I was of being a sweet Baptist boy. He's a sweet, I'm, you know, guys, he's a sweet, he's a, Roy's a sweet guy, you know? You know, if, when I was in high school, if your daughter had a date with me, you felt, yeah, she's going to be a sweet guy. He's a good guy. You know, you want her home at 10? I got her home at 10, you know? I was a real sweet, good guy. Mm-hmm. I came back from that Westpac cruise and now I'm no longer a sweet guy. I am a wild man. <laughs> I, I just had, it was, it was just, it was life-changing. Yeah. I mean, drinking, sex, you name it. It was all just there. Um, That's... I, I, had a, my, I had my introduction to marijuana in Guam. I had, uh, had my wisdom teeth pulled. It's on, I, we were there, went there in the uh, dentist's office. I had, went to the dentist, had my wisdom teeth pulled. I go back to the ship about 4 o'clock, and they gave me some uh, Tylenol or something, and, they, and I was still numbed up from the, you know, the, the anesthesia from the oral surgery. So I go to sleep about... 
four o'clock in the afternoon and I wake up, it's about eight o'clock and I'm hungry. There's no, the mess decks are closed on, on, on the ship. So I go to the quarter deck and I ask them, said, is there someplace on base? I get something to eat. I'm really hungry. And so the officer deck says, hey, see those, see that, see the van on the pier there? He says, he says, why don't you go with those guys? They're good and ready to go get a pizza or something. I said, okay. So I get in this van with these two other sailors and they break out this, 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 some weed and offer it to me. And uh, if you've had oral surgery, man, this stuff works great. But, but what I didn't realize, what they were, what my, my introduction to marijuana was I found out later talking to a shipmate, they said, dude, what you're smoking is called Buddha grass. And it's like tie sticks soaked in opium. You know, oh, this no. is my introduction to marijuana. And uh, it's like you're driving a Ferrari for your first time. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm off and running. So, you know, now what was kind of good about that, I think, was I never, I never bought marijuana in my life. You know, if I was at a party, you know, years later and people had a bong or something, I'd smoke. But, but you know, I got back, like, several years later, I'm back in college in, in Baton Rouge and uh, and uh, go to a party and they have the Mexican pot, you know, like the two-finger lid, three-finger lids that has the stems and seeds in it and all this stuff. Yeah. And somebody passes me that and I'm like, what is this, oregano? This is, this is doing nothing for me, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so I just, uh, I just, uh, just, uh, just, just kept going. But so I, my second ship was home ported in Athens, Greece. I spent, uh, so I, in my three years of active duty, I, I spent time in, in Asia, uh, Europe, Mediterranean, Italy, France, Spain, Sicily, all these places. Golly, I, mean, dude. I mean, just covered a lot of territory. Sounds pretty legit. And, and also, too, also too, I think an important thing to note is that uh, I never got in trouble for drinking. I never tried to drink on board ship. I never tried. It was never that point. Because I still had this little Baptist boy in me. I'm going to need to play by the rules, you know. Yeah. But anytime I did drink, it was, let's blow it out. Yeah, it was that it was I've, I've never had an interest in just having a drink or two to take the edge off. And, and I, in my drink of choice, by the time uh, by the time I got on into there, it was not beer is beer was OK to like warm up. But I really love Jack Daniels. Oh, love Jack Daniels. That would get you messed up. Um, wow. You know, and I, I got out of the Navy and I. Uh, I, I went back to school for a while, started working in the restaurant business, waiting tables, and uh, then into got into management, and that's really where my career was, is, is managing restaurants. Are there any alcoholics or drug addicts in that industry that, that do that? It's, it's, it's an ideal place to be. <laughs> You know, is it riddled with alcoholics? Uh, and well, there, there's, there's, there's a, has more than their fair share, probably so. You know, and so I just kept going through life, and I was pretty much in through my twenties for the most part. I'd say I was having a pretty good time. You know, I'd, I'd go out and uh, you know, uh, drinking a lot, and uh, that was just kind of like my. And, and I started smoke, really started smoking cigarettes a lot. Typical evening for me would be I work a day shift, and then after uh, after uh, we finish at five o'clock, I would. Uh, Go to happy hour and uh, two for one happy hour, let's say, and back they had back then, and that go until seven o'clock, and uh, and at when happy hour ended, my next thought would be, well, no, no reason to stop now, you know, and uh, Jack Daniels and Coke, I would 
I, you know, people exaggerate, so I don't want to exaggerate. I would say a typical night of drinking for me would consist of smoking a pack to a pack and a half of Winston cigarettes mm-hmm. and Jack and Cokes anywhere from nine to 15. Let's go. That's you know, <laughs> you know, that's going pretty hard. That's <laughs> so, all, you know, and, and, and it's, and, and, and I just did that. But what the problem was, one of the things that was a problem though, was, you know, I was still doing, getting work, my job done. I'm doing work, okay, work all right. And, uh, but, um, by the time I got to 28, 29 years old, it's like there's holes in my life that I can't explain. Like what? Like, why is it that you seem like you're a pretty good guy and there's girls that like you, but you never have a relationship that lasts more than maybe three weeks? Why do you think that was? Uh, because I was, what, uh, what was the line that you said, emotionally unavailable? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like leave before you're left, you know? <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and there's, there's, I just didn't really see any reason for it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, because it seemed like the way I was living was working okay for me. Uh, the other thing that came up was, man, you're making pretty good money. Uh, why can't you like buy a house? You know, well, you know, if you're got a in 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 the dollars back then in the late seventies, if you got like a thousand to fifteen hundred dollar a month bar tab. You know, <laughs> you have a pretty <laughs> which nice is today house. would be which today with today's I would be about five. I, I look at what alcohol prices, by the way, today. I couldn't afford to drink today. I just couldn't afford it. God, but, if you would have took that money, you could have had a really nice house. Yeah, exactly. But but really nice house. What about just think of all the fun I would have missed? Oh, okay, yeah, you had to work your way to AA. What about what about blackouts? Did you ever have blackouts? Um, I probably did from time to time, but but usually I'd be pretty cognizant about about what things went on. And uh, what about car wrecks or in, in run-ins with the police due to alcohol or drugs? Uh, absolutely, I'd, I never got arrested for drunk driving. Okay. Now I was running. Uh, let me tell you this to, uh, to qualify that is the asterisk on that is that I was in I was running the uh, uh, restaurant, the Steak and Ale in Jackson, Mississippi, in the eighties. And by this and this time, that's where I turned 80, 82, I turned 30 years old. And, and I was still five years away from getting sober, although I, and I had no idea it was coming. Uh, and I would have things happen like um, I'd be driving home from a late night bar, after hours bar and had a cop pull me over once. And I'm, you know, keep in mind, I'm the general manager of the steak and ale there. And uh, I'd give the cop a, a dinner for two pass <laughs> and he'd, he'd say well just follow me to your house and he'd, you know I'd get it like instead of your driver's license or with your driver's uh, license yeah yeah like, right and he'd say oh yeah we know who you are come on we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you get home safe uh, and, and and i and i and one of the things that started happening though in, in the later years uh i started hanging out more and more with more questionable people and uh, one of the guys that i uh, that i partied with gave me a uh, gave me a card that said I was an official Hines County deputy. 
And he said, Uh-oh. and he said, he said, if they stop you for drunk driving, say, yeah, I've been drinking and driving, but show them this and tell them the sheriff called you and you have to go pick up a prisoner. That's a bad idea. <laughs> so, That's impersonating a police officer. Yeah. Well, well I never had to use it, okay. but I had it, but I had that, I had that as a go-to. Okay. Uh, but, but, bad idea. but anyway, but, but, but yeah, that's, that's where I am. And so, but then, then about the, by 83, I'd say the wheels of my life just started falling off. You know, uh, working with Steak and Ale as a general manager in 84, uh, January of 84, February of 84, I got promoted to a general manager and managing partner. And six months later, I got fired, you know, and then I just, I just bounced all over for the next several years and, and uh, different jobs and all. And then in December of 86, I was home in Baton Rouge Christmas, and I'd taken a job in Atlanta. My old friend of mine, Tom, who has been a friend of mine, and we still are friends to this day, and, and we've known each other 46 years now. He was in town not so long ago, and Anytime in town, we go out for dinner, I always buy him dinner because he saved my life. He hired me uh, to, to take over a restaurant he had in Atlanta because the restaurant was struggling. And when he hired me over the phone, he hired me on the basis of thinking that I'm going to be the guy I was five or six years before. Hard charging, hard working, work hard, play hard guy, you know. And what he didn't realize that he was hiring somebody who was at the very end. So uh, before I left uh, Baton Rouge heading to Atlanta, uh, my sister-in-law, I think, was asked me if I, if I was an alcoholic. Because, what? Because, because the thing was, I, it was like there was too many things going wrong in my life. And while I had always strategically kept myself far enough geographically away from my family to... Uh, kind of isolate myself and pat, you know, insulate myself from them knowing about all about my life. If finally they are, they're starting to hear things. <laughs> starting to see some red flags. Uh, and they're, and they're, so now they're asking. So I didn't give her an answer. And I remember getting into the car, driving to Atlanta. And uh, what did you mean you didn't give her an answer? Did you say, oh, let me think about it? Or you act like you didn't hear the question? I or? just, I didn't say anything. I just said, say totally quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, so I got in my car and heading to Atlanta, and I remember thinking to myself at that point in time that if my life doesn't dramatically change, I don't want to ever see anybody I'm related to again. I'm done. I mean, I just, I'm just done. You know, we, you know, you look at Christmas examples of, as my alcoholism progressed. You know, uh, I would come home for Christmas every year wherever I was living or working. And the habit was I'd come two or three days before Christmas and stay for a couple of days afterward. We'd go Christmas carol and we'd do all this stuff. Uh, the last couple of years I was in Jackson, Mississippi, um, and running the restaurant there. My, my time, for, I'd come home for Christmas, but the time would be less and less. And by the, in the last couple of years, I remember the last, the last Christmas that I was still running that restaurant, I didn't, I drove, it's about a three hour drive to Baton Rouge. I didn't go until Christmas day. Ooh. I showed up in time for lunch, got there about 12 o'clock. And by one thirty, two o'clock, I'm on the road and I'm leaving. Okay. They're, they're, they're seeing me for an hour and a half, two hours. Were you drinking on the way there Christmas morning or did you no. try to show up sober? No, I showed up sober. Yeah. But what I did do 
I drove back three more hours back and went and sat in my bar by myself uh-huh. and drank my ass off. And sitting there thinking to myself, why are you driving this far so you can sit by yourself and drink? And there's, there's, there's some alarms going off in my head like there's something really wrong here, you know. And uh, so, so that, that's where I was. And then I landed in Atlanta in the uh, end of January, 87. And about, I guess about eight weeks later, I uh, got through March. And then uh, in April, the, uh, you know, Tom and, and the guys that, that were his partners, and those were all guys that I'd been buddies with and friends with, drank with those guys. They, um, they, um, had me go up to Bowling Green, Kentucky, where their offices were. Flew from Atlanta to Nashville and then catch a ride. Some picked me up about a 45-minute ride up into Kentucky to Bowling Green. So I'm there. I'm thinking I'm going to a management meeting. I think they're going to fire your ass. And uh, Maybe not. It's like they feel like they're going to. No, I, I, walked, I walked in, and, they, uh, and it was intervention. Oh, okay. And uh, really, so I walk in, I sit down, oh, and they tell no. me they sit there. And my intervention was, I just I, I nodded and I agreed. Oh. I did not I did not put up any any resistance to what they were telling me. Oh my god! I, I, my performance at my intervention was masterful. Okay, it was epic. I cried. I did everything. <laughs> I did. I you agreed to. I did, I did everything because what they said was, they said, "We'll keep you on payroll." Okay, but you're a veteran. You can go to the VA. Okay, uh-huh. and uh, in Atlanta and get help. And and one of the guys, Stan, he said, "You need to know this is going to be like you're going to do this for three weeks and be okay." He says, "You've got you've got some real change to do." Now, the, what was significant to me about one of the things about my intervention, looking back at it, was the guys that were talking to me about my drinking problems were guys I got drunk with. <laughs> I mean, people that I got drunk with looked at me and went, "You are in a lot of trouble." Yeah. And uh, so, um, Had you, they said they mentioned the VA. Did you have VA stands for Veteran Administration, veteran administration right? Here in, in because we have listeners all over the world, right? So when he talks about the VA, he's talking about the Veterans Administration, which is the um, healthcare branch of the United States military. They take care of all the people that gave service to this country through right. the military, correct? Right? So, had, did you have any interactions with them post discharge? Had you got? Had you have your VA card? Had you ever been there to do anything? I'd never been there for anything. You just rolled in and said, "I'm a drunk." <laughs> Actually, that's not what I did. Okay. Here, here's so so so. I'll, real important thing here. Yeah. I left the intervention, uh-huh. and I was sitting outside, and they had a this guy kid that worked for him in his early twenties that was going to take me back to the airport so I could fly back to Atlanta. Okay. Right? With the understanding that when I go, I'm going to go, go to the VA, go to the hospital and, and seek treatment for alcoholism. Let me ask you a very important question. As you exited the intervention and you're walking to the car and this kid's taking the airport, what was going on in your mind? I'm sure it was spinning and swirling, but what were your thoughts and emotions as you left the intervention? I just, I just thought, man, I was just really, uh, just really in a in a daze. I think I was in a daze. I was just really confused, and I was very sad. Okay. And I'm thinking, yeah, what is what is happening to me? You know, you're going, what is happening to me? Well, we get to the airport. It's about a 45 minute ride. Now, this kid that's driving me, he has no idea that I just came out of the intervention. So we're pulling up to the airport. 
And then he says to me, you know, usually when I come to the airport, I like to go and have a couple of beers. You want to have a couple of beers? I went, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so uh, I go in and have a couple of beers with him. Yeah. I get on the plane to fly back to Atlanta. Yeah. I had two Jack and Cokes on the flight. It's a 30-minute flight. I drank two there. So now I've got a little buzz going on. I get in my car, and I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to show up tomorrow at the VA, then tonight it's time to get this done. Okay. So I went to his Tattletail Strip Club in Atlanta. I said, I went to a nice bad this morning. I'm a wild man. Yeah. And I stayed there and drank until, like, I guess 2 in the morning. Drank a lot. I mean, just, just smashed. And driving home. And now when I drive home, uh, I'm not, I know I'm not holding it together. I'm afraid that I'm going to get pulled over. I, you know, I said, man, I'm, 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 it's so easy for me to get arrested right now. And, and one of the things I did on my, driving home on my last, from my last drunk, what turned out to be my last drunk, was uh, I was thinking, well, I really got to pee, but, you know, I don't, if I get out of my car, you know, somebody's going to see me and how drunk I am. So I just peed in my car, you know. And, uh, you know, I haven't peed in my car since. But, but, uh, so but, your, your last drink and your last drunk was at the adult entertainment complex called the Tattletale? Tattletales, yeah. yeah. Is it still open? It's still there. Yes, it is. <laughs> Do you go back every year? No, 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 no. <laughs> I get up and I go find where the VA hospital is in Decatur and I drive up there and I'm kind of figuring out where I'm supposed to go. And I walk in, they have this admissions place and I wait my turn and, and I had my ID and they were able to tell that I was in fact a veteran and that I was honorably discharged and I was eligible for benefits. The uh, lady that's talking with me, she says, um, so what brings you here today? Oh. <laughs> and my, immediately, my first thought was, said, I said, well, you know, I smoke a lot of cigarettes. And I have a family history of like emphysema and tuberculosis. And I think I might. And she's kind of nodding her head as I'm talking about respiratory problems, you know. And then I said, and I said, some of my friends think I might have some problems with alcohol abuse. Well, she stopped writing right away and said, why don't you go to them on the fifth floor? So, yeah. so I go up to the fifth floor and there's this slender lady there greets me as I walk into this door, the room I'm supposed to walk into. And she smiles and uh, she uh, starts talking to me and she has a clipboard and she's making some notes and she's asking me questions. And she's very sweet about it. Like, so what's your favorite thing to drink? How much do you drink every day? Do you have blackouts? And on and on. And, and I'm kind of thinking... Hey, this could be pretty easy here. This, this, this is, she's sweet. This is nice. So she says, we'll just have a seat over here and the doctor will be with you shortly. And then she says, you should be really proud of yourself today for being here today. I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling proud about anything, man. I'm, I'm like, this is the end of the road here. You know, this is life's over. Life is definitely over here. And then the doctor calls me over. He's a big guy. I'm sitting down. He's towering over me. He's looking at the clipboard, looks down at me, and then he says, point blank, he said, are you an alcoholic? I looked at him and I said, well, could you give me a definition? <laughs> I mean, if there's a way out here, let's find it. So he told me his definition and this definition I use to this day. He says, an alcoholic is someone who's drinking. He's having an adverse effect on any area of their life and they drink anyway. 
said, if it's hurting you financially and you drink anyway, you're an alcoholic. If it's hurting your family and you drink anyway, you're an alcoholic. If you, it's hurting your career and you drink anyway, you're an alcoholic. He said, because if any of those things are going on, that means the alcohol is a control and you are not. Now, are you an alcoholic? And with trembling lip, for the first time in my life, I said, yes, I am. And then the next thing he said to me, he said, if you want to live, you're going to have to make sobriety the number one priority of your life for the rest of your life. And the only way anyone knows of you having a chance of having that happen to you for sure long term is by going to and participating in the program and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Next thing he said to me was, being an alcoholic is not your fault, but it's your responsibility to do something about it. He signed me up for outpatient treatment. He gave me a prescription for antivuse for 30 days. He says, you're going to take this, take one of these pills every day. And, uh, and if you take any alcohol in your body at all while taking this medication, you're going to get extremely ill. He said, but I want you to understand this drug is not your solution. I'm buying you 30 days of dry time to try and get your brain, brain unscrambled. I want you to go to a meeting tonight, pick up a desire chip, be back here tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock to start out patient treatment. Gave me a laminated copy of How It Works, like you see all over the place. Gave me a, they called the Where and When, the book. This is all before internet. This is the, uh, the book that has the list of all the meetings in Atlanta. I went to the, the pharmacy, I got the antivuse, I took a pill, went back to my apartment, which by the way, my apartment had no furniture in it anymore. <laughs> I, was, I had a sleeping bag on, I mean, I, I have a job paying me 50000 a year and I don't have a bed. I mean, this, this is just how, how dire my life had gotten. I saw that there was a place up Roswell Road from where, uh, near, and I lived on Roswell Road, apartment on Roswell Road uh, called the 8111 and I... Um, Drove up there to my first meeting. What was significant in retrospect about that to me was that 18 hours before that, I'm driving up Roswell Road drunk and peeing in my car, but I'm not embarrassed. I'm now driving to my first AA meeting, and I'm embarrassed. I'm hoping no one sees me going to AA. And to make matters worse, when I pull up to the clubhouse, it was on like a, a little hill. and had this little winding uh, driveway that went up to it that was gravel, which made a lot of noise. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, somebody's going to hear me. This is, this is horrible. And uh, so I went in there, and I took a seat in the back. I had my first AA meeting and uh, listened. Remember, the things I remember about the meeting was this. One, at the end of the meeting, they offered a desire chip, and there they used like a white poker chip. I knew I was supposed to get one, so I raised my hand, and everybody starts applauding, you know, and everybody's excited and all. And I go up there, and this jolly guy with this big handlebar mustache hands this to me and gives me a big hug and all. Then the guys in the meeting all kind of gathered around me afterward to talk to the, the newbie, you know, me. So I'm listening and I'm thinking, and I look at the guys and I, I, I said, well, uh, so you guys don't like drink like ever? <laughs> they said, no, man, you're done. <laughs> and then a guy gave me a, a med daily meditation book, and, and then I was going, you know, and then I went through the treatment uh, every day. Uh, did that, and uh, our treatment was about 
several things that were significant in that. We, it, was, it was designed to get us through the first three steps. And we spent a lot of time on that. We spent a lot of time in the Living Sober book. Uh, and the doctor spent a lot of time talking to us about the medical aspects of alcoholism. And he talked a lot about the medical aspects of how most people in this country die of lifestyle, lifestyle diseases. You know, obesity, heart disease, I mean, so much of this stuff is tied, to, is tied into what our lifestyle is. Um, he also gave me a... Uh, I was smoking and, and uh, he gave me a pre- Nicorette was a prescription drug at the time. He gave me a prescription for Nicorette for down the road if I wanted to quit smoking. And uh, so, you know, I. Um, you're so different now, dude. I cannot imagine. I'm sitting here thinking, I was like, you're describing yourself at that time, and I don't know you as somebody that would be smoking all the time. I don't know you as somebody that would be drunk right. all the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know you as somebody to be driving down the road peeing in your car. Like, like, that's not the Roy I know. But you're, like, telling me about that, Roy, and I'm like, God dang, man. I've got to know this Roy versus that Roy. I want to read something real quick. You mentioned a moment ago when you were at the VA, uh, and I do want to give a big shout-out to the VA before I read this. You mentioned the VA gave you a copy of How It Works, and I'm, gonna right. about, I'm about to read How It Works for some of our listeners that don't know what you're talking about. Though. I'm about to read How It Works uh, okay. in a second. But before we dig into that and then I get back to your story, I want to talk to... The people, and I know we've got a huge international, we're heard in over 200 countries, you know, but 88%, no, I think 79% of our listeners are in the United States of America. So a large portion of them are American. So if you work at the VA, if you go to the VA for service, if you know someone that has in the past, or you're going to go to the VA in the future, I want to say thank you to the VA. I want to say big shout out, much love from me on this side of the table because they have done a great service for my family through my father. My father was a, he was in the Navy and he was a CB. He was part of the construction battalion and he was in Antarctica. And so they have done nothing but be uh, courteous, kind, efficient, loving, and caring towards my dad who is 80 years old now. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that I love the VA And they also gave some great service to my father-in-law, who just recently passed away at the VA. Mm -hmm. And so I've got nothing but love and great things to say about that. So thank you for your service to you, Roy. And also thank you for your service if you're listening out there and you have anything to do with providing service to our veterans at the VA. So here's something called How It Works. And this is from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to read this in case you're not familiar with this or have not heard it. Here we go. How It Works. Rarely. Have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path? Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually, men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. 
Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Can I have you read the 12 steps, and then I'll finish how it works after you read the 12 steps? Sure. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is, we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The guides we have set down are guides to progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and that God could and would if he were sought. So let's jump back into your early sobriety. You started going to these meetings. Tell me a little bit more about early sobriety, how you, how you got in the steps, if you had a sponsor, how you got a sponsor. Let's run through that first year of sobriety. Uh, very good. Uh, well, I think probably by my uh, second or uh, third meeting, uh, the, the guys at the meeting were asking me um, if I had a sponsor. I said, well, no, and, uh, and I knew I needed to get one. And the way they did it in that meeting was kind of the only place I've ever been where they did this. The guys asked me, so what do you do for a living? I said, I manage restaurants. They said, oh, well, we got a restaurant manager here. We're going to get you with a guy that's in the same business you are. So they got me with Steve in, and he was uh, my, uh, his family owned restaurants in Atlanta. And uh, he, uh, he was, became my sponsor. And uh, he told me to start reading the book, and then he started, and then he told me to read the page on acceptance every day. In addition to that, while I was doing that, so I was, I got, I, got, I was very cooperative at the get go. I mean, and I think that's one of the, one of the reasons I, I have won sobriety day is, you know, I tell people I didn't go to A my first year. I moved into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was there all the time. You know, after the outpatient treatment ended, I would go to 
two or three meetings sometimes a day. Why were you so open to it? And what was your impetus to being so open to it? Because I was convinced that there was no other, that there was nothing left for me. Okay. I was either this, this, or I'm going to die. I mean, the doctor told me that the first day you AA or die. And I went, well, okay, I guess I'll do AA. <laughs> a lot you of know, people are like, give me a minute. Let me I, think about I, that. I, I believed him and I believed him. And, uh, and, and one of the things that was some significant points that came up to me was after I've been there a week, I'm sitting there at the 8111 club. I'm noticing how it's like, there's a lot of gl- windows that glass and uh, it's all just thick with nicotine, you know, because it's a smoking club, you know. Thank God they had smoking clubs back then because I was a big smoker. And the know? walls were like a nicotine brown. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. So I, I was, I, I'd gotten there like an hour and a half before the meeting was starting. And I'm just sitting there looking around. And, and anyone knows me. I mean, I really talk a lot. But back then I wasn't talking at all. I was just stoic i was saying oh. and for some reason or another i i i looked at that and i got up and i walked down the street to a kroger and i got a bottle of windex and i got a roll of paper towels i went back there and started cleaning windows because i was afraid they were going to make me leave i wanted to give them reasons to let me stay that's where i was so uh that's beautiful so i did that and then uh, I finished that, and then they moved me back up to Bowling Green for a while to work because, uh, you know, I was not – they were going to close the restaurant I'd been running anyway. So I get to Bowling Green. I go to a club there, and that's where I get my 90-day chip. And there was a guy named Jim who was another restaurant manager. And I remember thinking, well, I need to get a sponsor here in Bowling Green. And um, he uh, – uh, and I could heard him sharing meetings, and I knew I didn't like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so if there was anybody I, that was going to be a sponsor for me, I did not want it to be him. And somehow, though, that worked out, he ended up being my sponsor. And he talked to me every, we talked every day. We talked at the end of every night. I'd call him before I'd go to sleep. And... The things that were significant about Jim was that he would challenge me on what my thinking was, you know, because my thinking was not good. And um, but also, too, the thing that was really significant for him with him was even whenever he would like call me out on stuff, the last thing he said to me every night was, Roy, I love you. And. uh it was really good to hear that. Um, I love that too. When they did that to me earlier and they would say things to me like, Hey, Michael, I'd be like, Hey, what? And they'd be like, keep coming back. Yeah. We'll see you tomorrow night at six o'clock. And you know who had been telling me that they loved me and that they would see me tomorrow. No one towards the end of my drinking. (laughs) No, no, man. There's there's people that there's probably people today. Sorry. They know that I'm alive, much less sober and doing well. But dude, I hadn't uh, heard that in a while. I hadn't heard laughter in a while. mm -hmm. And in my first year of sobriety, I heard some uproarious outbursts of laughter within the context of meeting. And I was like, it was like a foreign sound to me because I was so, I was so lost in the sauce and so deep in my alcoholism and drug addiction that the, the, 
the part of the human experience that engages and experiences laughter had been removed from me or at least dampened and quieted. So my first year of sobriety, I heard some uproarious and outbursts of laughter. And I was like, that sounds really, really nice. And then they would, they were nice to me. They would be like, Oh, we really liked what you shared today, Michael. We'll see you tomorrow. And one thing I liked about it in early sobriety in California in Southern California, where I got sober, it's hilarious. I don't know if you've, into Southern California AA meetings, but a lot of times, almost all the time, seriously, every time after somebody shares in a discussion meeting, they, the entire room claps right. after every single share. And so I would say something and I don't know what I would say. It was probably <laughs> terrible, dude, yeah. spreading the disease instead of, you know, whatever the recovery program or hope I would say something, just, just vomit out this poison. And then the entire, and I would stop talking and the entire room would erupt into applause. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I was like, that feels good. Mm-hmm. I just got a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings in, in early sobriety. So I'll let you get back to your story, but that was my experience my first year. Well, well, they, well, you know, so, so I, w- I was doing the things they told me to do every morning on my knees. God, help me stay sober today. At the end of the day, on my knees, God, thank you. In between, I talked to a sponsor every day. Go to a meeting. I'd start reading more in the big book. And, uh, you know, I'd gotten through the first three steps uh, pretty well in the outpatient treatment deal. And, but uh, I just kind of wandered around on a four step for a while, for about four or five months. And uh, just because I was, I was going to work in a restaurant every day. And, um, and I was just, I, was, I had a lot of things in me that, that needed to be unscrambled. And it was going to take some time. Um, somebody could have said, just said, you have to do the four step now. I could have maybe given it a shot. But my, I was just, I was no condition. I was, in, I, I was mentally and emotionally in still very rough shape. So I, I wandered along. And then whenever I was five months, four and a half, five months sober, I came to work one day and they let me go. Because I just, I was just too crazy. I mean, there's just too many things going on with me. And um, uh, one of the things that my old sponsor, Rick P., and I shared experience we had is that when you're sober and they meet you in the parking lot to fire you, <laughs> it's kind of a good, good indication that, you know, you're, out of, you're still emotionally out of control. But, uh, but then that's where I was. But I went over to Jim's house after I got fired, and um, his wife, who was sober eight years at the time, Debbie, she uh, was listening to me and lament about, oh, God, what am I, what's going to happen to me, what am I going to do, it's all the usual stuff you go through. And she just very simply said to me, said, said very simply, said, Roy, your life's going to be okay if you do what you're supposed to do. That's it. So I left Bowling Green. I went to uh, Dallas, where my sister was, to start looking for a job. First time I w- that was in uh, the uh, fall of 87. And that's uh, went to Preston Group. I found Preston Group as a place to go. And Preston Group is where I picked up a six-month chip. Got myself a job that was going to move me over to Longview, Texas. Went over there. And uh, at six months sober... And Don became my sponsor. Don was a tax attorney. And uh, I got through, finished my fourth step and did my fifth step with Don. And uh, this is like November of 87. And um, some real significant things happened in that. 
you know, I'd, ha- I'd got that Nicorette gum, and the Nicorette gum had uh, had the instructions on how to quit smoking on have your quit day, and and uh, you know, wash the ashtrays, put them away, do all this stuff, and on the morning, the, the morning you wake up, you're a non-smoker, and you use Nicorette instead of smoke, etc. And uh, and and I, I get about 90 days sober is whenever I made my first attempt to quit smoking because I said, you know, because I started thinking, I think I might want to live. I don't know. Maybe, maybe life has something for me out here. Maybe I want to live. And so uh, I tried that with the Nicorette instructions and I was smoking by noon. And uh, <laughs> my sponsor, Steve there in Atlanta, he just very simply put it. He said, Roy, he says, put smoking, put stop smoking in your prayers and you'll quit. It was like, Put it in your prayer, and you'll quit, just matter-of-factly. So I'd done everything the Nicorette instructions had, but I didn't put it in that prayer. And I'm smoking by noon. Another month and a half passes. Two months, I said, I'm going to have another quit day. We have another shot. I did all the stuff. Got me some Reese's peanut butter cups in the refrigerator, in case I get sugar cravings. All this stuff. And did all that stuff. I'm smoking by 10.30 a.m., because I did everything else, but I did not put it in my prayer. And then when I got to Longview and I'm seven months sober, I did all the things the Nick Rick Gum told me to do. Watch the ashtrays. Got myself some love my carpet and v- v- vacuumed out my apartment, which had furniture in it by now, by the way. And uh, got it ready. And then the next morning I woke up and uh, I got on my knees. said, God, thank you for this day. Help me to be sober today. And for the first time ever, I put in my prayer. I said, God, I want you to know that I know that I am not going to have the life you want for me if I continue to smoke. Please help me stop smoking today. I got off off my knees. I kind of looked around, you know, and I was in a different world. It was over. I mean, I just flat out was. I mean, I was kind of like, what's just happened here? I mean, I started praying for God to help me stay sober when I came in. In about three and a half, four weeks, it occurred to me that I hadn't really thought about drinking in a while. You know, couldn't really last some time of drinking. It kind of happened without me being aware of it. I was very aware of this, that God had just, just tremendously made a seismic shift in me. I carried around the Nicorette gum, never really felt like using it. Once or twice a day, I chew a piece just because that's there. But about three days in, I knew it was over. I hadn't, I hadn't smoked a cigarette again. Wow. Wow. And that was at seven months of Seven months. And then at seven months, I got that fifth step done. And uh, um, I'm really thinking that Don is, Don, uh, Don really pointed some great things out to me in, the step, in, in my first time going through the fifth step. One of the things was he, he stopped me halfway through and he said Roy he said there's a really big gap here between reality and your perception of reality <laughs> and, and, it, and I was 35 years old and that had never occurred to me <laughs> that all this crap was going on in my head about what people were doing or what was happening to me that just was flat out not true <laughs> you know it's just that's not true you know 
you know, what if bosses aren't out to get you, you know? Yeah. What if girls actually just like you because you're you, uh, you know? I mean, it's just, you know, it just it never occurred to me. We're selfish and self-centered to the extreme. We're selfish <laughs> and self-centered to the extreme. I remember my first year of sobriety, I woke up one day about eight months sober, and I was laying in my little bed all, of course, no girlfriend, no wife, no kid, just laying there by myself, single, and eight months sober. And I started thinking, I was like... I was like, Mike, nobody's out to get you, dude. Nobody's waking up at the same time that you're waking up and thinking, what can I do to ruin Mike's day today? Yeah, I know. What, what can I do to, when I come across him, what can I do to really make him mad or put him in a bad position or, you know, put him in a bad position politically at work because work is all about politics. And, you know, I just, there's like, nobody's doing that, dude. As a matter of fact, no one's thinking about you right now, Michael, just you. That's right. And so I finally started to calm down. I was like, I was like, okay, if nobody's thinking about me, nobody's like, I'm not the center of everybody's world. Uh, I slowly by little started to, well, me and God together, I guess, as a team, we slowly by little started to chip away at my selfishness and self-centeredness where I was the center of the entire world. And it set me it set me free, but it took a long time. It's embarrassing to admit that. And I had to start doing that at 31 years old. You know, I was, yeah. I was 31 when I started to figure that out. Most people figure that out. I would assume way earlier than right. that, or at least the healthy ones, you know, let me ask you a question about God. So you got to, you got to alcoholics and you start seeing the word God on the wall. Right. What were your thoughts about that? Cause it could have said something different. Like you need to exercise a lot or it could have said yeah. anything, but, but it says God, what did you think when you saw that? Well, having, uh, uh, growing up in a Baptist church and a Christian faith, um, in my you know I departed from that in my uh, pursuit of being the life of a wild man, and uh, I would uh, if you saw me at happy hour when I was in my late twenties or early thirties. I would refer to myself as a secular humanist. That was a real '80s kind of a thing. What does that put, mean? I, I'm not really sure. But it means <laughs> it means it means I, you know. And I would tell people, well, you know, I think when we die, we become worm food, and that's it. You know, so a secular humanist. Yeah, that was something I was kind of. If you're trying to pick up a girl, you know, that's you're trying to press a girl. You know, you know. That, yeah, I don't know what that means. Yeah, but anyway, but anyway, so I'd abandoned. So now, so so it's kind of like you know, you first the doctor tells me, you know, you got to go. A or die, and I'd heard enough about AA to think I didn't really want to go there. And then I go to AA, and they say, you know, your your, your survival is going to depend upon your relationship with a God or your understanding. And I'm thinking, man, I'm, this is this is bad. This is not good news here. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, death can't be that bad, can it? You know. And uh, but but I I but I started going through the motions, and then what I started to experience was. Uh, this like whenever the, the prayer and the stop smoking made me say, yeah, no, Roy, God has not abandoned you here. God's working in your life here. You know, you just need to kind of keep moving and, and doing this thing. And, uh, and, and, it, and I, I didn't have, I really didn't have any, any like major conflict with, with God. I mean, I, I, I uh, and what I, what I learned and what I think AA has done for me did for me was have the experience that I can be very, very honest with God about how I'm feeling, about what's going on with me, and it's okay. You know, it's okay. I don't, I don't, you know, I, it's one of the things that's been interesting to me. I hear some people that talk about being atheists and some people that are celebrities that are, and they, 
they say, well, and then they, they always end up with, well, I just don't think there's an old man in the sky with a long beard uh, keeping keep in score. And I said, well, you know, I'm a Christian and I, I don't believe in that God either. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I think, I think our, our ability to really, we don't have the ability to comprehend the creator universe. You know, we're just people here whose lives are brief, brief blimps on the screen in, in contrast to the age of the universe. We think we're going to figure all this out. You know, we, we, you know that's not why I'm here, you know. Uh, I'm very involved with my church and stuff today, but I'm not a, I, I don't, I'm not a theology guy. And people, want, people sometimes want to get in debates about theology. Find somebody else. I'm not doing that. I don't play that game, you know. You got to figure, you know, everybody needs to figure out what they want with God in their life or not. You got to figure it out yourself. You know, I, I can't answer that for you. I can tell you what happened with me. You know, I can tell you what happened with me. I can tell you that I can tell you that I, I asked God to help me stay sober and I quit drinking. I can tell you that I asked God to help me not smoke and I stopped smoking. I can, that's, that's it. You know, I mean, and, and I can tell you that, you know, one of the things like in terms of my association with church today and all, uh, uh, I want to, there's a great line in, in the, uh, about step two in the 12 and 12, it says we resigned from the debating society because for several years in early sobriety, I, I would have this debate, church, AA, church, AA, church, AA, you know, had this debate going on. And about three years in, I came to the realization that this debate resides between my ears. It's not any place else. So when I go to my church, I don't expect it to be AA. When I go to AA, I don't expect it to be church. It's two different things. What I do know is this, is I, when I watch people, watch myself, and I watch other people, the people that are really getting the most out of their church experience has something very much in common with the people who are getting the most out of their AA experience. And that's that word service. Walking there instead of, you know, one of the things fascinating me about a lot of folks that, that really are, seem like they're anti-church is that they, their complaint about churches is that churches are judgmental. But the first thing they do when they go to a church is start judging everybody at the church. They're all hypocrites. Yeah, da, da. And it just goes right ahead. You're, you're doing the thing that, that you're accusing them of, I think, you know. And uh, so I just, I'm out of the debating society. I don't do the religious debates. I don't do any of that stuff, you know. Uh, I go to church and look for ways I can enjoy it, maybe look for ways I can contribute. I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I look for ways I can contribute, and I go, to, go there to enjoy myself. And I leave it. God can let God sort all this stuff out. It's, it's, it's not, not for me to do. Yeah, time is a, very, a valuable resource. As a matter of fact, it's my most valuable resource. I'm 53 years old, and, you know, that's not a spring chicken anymore, and I have started to assimilate to being an adult. <laughs> I started yeah, to assimilate yeah. to being an adult. Don't get too carried away. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> I just keep getting pushed in that direction by all my responsibilities. Not necessarily something I want to do, but it just seems like it keeps happening to me. So I consider myself an adult now, and I just keep thinking about, like, um, Alcoholics Anonymous and how grateful I am that I have a 
toolkit, a spiritually based toolkit to right. be able to handle all these things that keep coming at me a hundred miles an hour life. I, there's no pause button on life. There's no time out. There's no do overs usually. It's all about like, Michael, do the best you can use the spiritual tools that you have at your disposal that have been laid at your feet by your friends in the program and get to work because uh, it's time to go. We got to do this deal. I want to talk a little bit more about Rick P. And two things I want to talk about Rick P is I want you to tell listeners who he is. I want you to consider using his last name and saying it out loud because he's passed away. And three, I want you to tell us what you learned from him. Tell us about Rick P. Just paint a picture of him. And, and, and I love the guy, but let the listeners know who he is to you and what he means to you. And if you want to use his last name, I say we do it. But if you don't want to, we'll just keep it Rick P. What do you think? Sure. Uh, Rick Pullen. Um, in, uh, Rick became my sponsor around 2005, uh, and he was um, he was very influential on me during a very difficult time. I I was heading for divorce. I'm married. I was married, father of three, um, and heading for a divorce in 2005, 2006, and I uh, was really struggling with a lot of things career-wise at that time as well. And uh, Rick was just kind of helping me keep, um, keep, keep myself between the lines here, you know, and. Uh, Did you walk up to him and formally ask him to be your sponsor? Uh, uh, he, I think uh, we, I, I was talking to him at a Georgetown group and he just, I was talk I was just talking about what I was dealing with in, in my, in my life. And he just said, well, here's my phone number. Call me. All right. So I called him, you know, and the next thing you know, I mean, I'm having lunch with this guy three or four times a week after meetings and I'm talking to him every day. And then when the divorce happened in uh, 08, I mean, it was every day and he would, uh, Rick had the, uh, would, would have, I, he, he could talk to me. 15 or 20 minutes every day about what was going on in my life. 08, fall of 08, I'm going through divorce. I'd lost my job and uh, things are very bleak. You know, this life is not working out the way it's supposed to. And uh, I would call uh, Rick and he would say things to me like, well, do you have a place to sleep today? I said, yes. He said, well, you're okay. He says, uh, you have anything to eat today? I said, yeah, you're okay. He goes, you're okay. You're okay today. Things going to work out, you know? And then I asked him once, I said, he said, uh, I said, I don't know when I'm going to get, get, a, get paid again. I don't know when I'm going to get a next job. He said, did you have any change left in your pocket today? I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, he said, um, well, maybe you could be described as a man with more money than he knows what to do with. <laughs> and, and, and slow me down. Uh, the other thing he did too with me was on this writing thing. He was, famous for this he'd always give you parts of the big book he wanted you to write down for me it was the abcs to the ark of freedom you know it says see god could and would if he were sought being convinced we were at step three and then you go through all the next uh the next pages you know all the way down to where it talks about self and self-centeredness we have to quit playing god and then it says that down to the ark of freedom so what i would do i would read a line write it down Realign, write it down. And, and I think the point of the exercise for me 
was to kind of slow my brain down that was in full panic mode all the time. I think I said, well, you know, this is how it feels. This is how your life looks right now. But you're, but it's really going to be okay. You know, you don't know how it's going to be, but it's going to be okay. You know, and uh, it was funny. I mean, it's like, you got to keep in mind, I, he's doing this with me when I'm like 25 years sober. And I'm bringing him this stuff I've written like a kid bringing his, his homework in the, it's, it's in the fifth grade, you know, and I'm, I'm doing that with him. That's and, awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, one of the things, too, uh, that, is con- that I would say, too, is very consistent. And, it's, and it's also consistent with guys that I work with to this day. Guys that do well, I tell them to do things and they do it. It's amazing. If you, it's like you supposed to tell you to do something. Consider the possibility of maybe doing it. I was and, that guy. <laughs> I was that guy, and I remember my sponsor giving me feedback early. I, he gave me like four assignments, and I did them all. And then he gave me the fifth assignment. I did it, and I showed up at his house and gave him the papers, and he just was staring at me. And I was like, and I was feeling better, looking get better. And he looked at me, and he goes, "I go, you all right?" He goes, "Yeah, man." He goes. I, uh, he goes, you're a little bit different than the regular average dude I sponsor. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. And I go, why? What do you mean? He goes, because you listen to me and you do what I say and you turn the assignments in. He goes, most people, they don't do that. I mean, I tell a lot of people, I make a lot of suggestions. You might want to try this. You want to do this. But it's like, I tell you to do something and then you do it. And then you bring it back to me. He goes, it's kind of shocking. He's like, I'm kind of impressed, dude. <laughs> and I was like, and then when he said that, you know what? Okay, I, for, I didn't even mean to say this until about like five, six, seven, eight seconds ago. Okay, I remember now. He said, he said that, and then I looked at him and I said, yeah, I agree with you. I do do everything that you say you suggest. And I looked at him dead in the eye. I go, do you know why I do that? And he goes, no, why? I go, because I don't want to die. That's right. I don't want to die. I don't want to die, man. I don't want to die of active alcoholism, and I don't want to die of active drug addiction. Right. And I am terrified, and I'm coming into you fresh off of the front lines of active alcoholism and drug addictions, and uh, I got destroyed. I got destroyed on that battlefield, and the gasoline in my sobriety engine is the horrific things that happened to me out there on that front lines of drinking sure. and drugging. And that's why I do what you say. And that's why I read what you tell me to do. And that's why I write what you tell me to write. And he's like, okay, good enough. Right on. And then we would move forward. So keep talking about Rick P. Well, you know, he, uh, Rick, one, one, Rick was really about chapter seven, working with others. And one of the habits he, that he gave to me was like, if I pick up a new sponsee, I go back and read chapter seven again, because it's real clear about, uh, what my responsibilities are and what they're not. There's several things in there that say never do. Okay. And uh, if you are a listener and uh, you want to know, you, I would suggest go read chapter seven and find out what the nevers are, but they're in there, but you need to go find them yourself. Hundreds, not, of, pe- you. hundreds of people are going to do that, by the way. <laughs> Ser- I swear to God, there's going to be hundreds of people that listen to this podcast and like, all right, I take AA pretty serious, and this guy's telling me to go do this. So I promise you a lot yeah. of people are going to do that, including and, me. I'll do it. And one, and one of the things that he pointed out, too, was, and, and keep in mind, this is a guy that's sponsoring 35 or 40 people. 
I mean, he's sponsoring people all over the country. He was tall, good-looking, athletic dude. I love Rick P. He was a tennis pro and he instructor. But the, but the thing with him, though, and you would look at how much time he spent with each person. You're going, how is this guy doing it? You <laughs> he's know? doing it all day. Yeah, and uh, you know, because he 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 had been working in in mortgage banking and stuff, and he left that and started working as a guy whose stocks. Uh, magazines and grocery stores because it gave him more time to work with drunks yeah because he decided because this he says making a lot of money and driving a cadillac is not what my life's about you know but but then he uh, but the thing too was i mean we there's a tendency i think when we talk about people like rick or clancy or, or chuck c etc our circuit speakers, we, we, there's a tendency for us to look at those people with, with maybe, uh, it's, it's good to have an admiration, respect for them, but it's real important to realize they're just regular people, man. Yeah. They're just, they're just another, they're just a regular guy. There's really nothing fundamentally different with them or you and me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's the question, the question is, is how, how much, the question is, how much do I uh, want to commit to what my role in Alcoholics Anonymous is? You know, and we all have different roles. We all have different answers to that question too. Yeah, yeah. So some, are, some so, people are like very little. Yeah, you know. I mean, there's you know there's you know the the last thing. I mean, uh, if Rick Rick was the the keys to things, I think that I learned from Rick too, to really have a great quality of life and sobriety, is to be transparent. Okay, be humble. Don't take credit for your sobriety. Recognize it's a gift from God. And uh, and just look for ways to be a be a be a good part of other people's day. Sponsor I have now, Paul. You know, after after Rick passed, uh, Paul shared one day about um, in a meeting years ago about how um, his sponsor he had told his sponsor and doing they're looking at amends. And Paul had said, you know, he talked about how he'd been so rude and disrespectful and hateful towards bartenders and waiters and waitresses. How do I make that amend? And uh, his sponsor told him, he says, well, what you're going to do, he says, going forward, he said, you, I want you to, whenever you're in a grocery store and someone's wearing a name tag, I want you to call them by their name, ask them how they're doing today. He says, when, you, anybody's, when everybody's waiting on you, ask them the name and call them by the name. Don't treat them like they're invisible. Call tell them like they're a human being. He said, uh, his sponsor told him, if it calls for tipping, tip generously. If you don't have the money to tip generously, you shouldn't go. <laughs> and then, his, then, then Paul said, he asked his sponsor, how long do I need to do this? And he said, for the rest of your life. And whenever he said that, I went, that's the guy I want for a sponsor if, if, whenever, if, if, if whenever Rick goes. Because that's, a, that's, that's living this thing out. This is, for me, Alcoholics Anonymous in my faith, in church, et cetera. This isn't about having some mountaintop experience with the wind blowing through my hair or, or super spiritual movement in, in music in church or whatever. It's about how I'm living every day. How am I treating people? You know, I, and, you know my, these days, I mean, I, my goal, the thing I pray for every morning when I, in my time of prayer I ask God to help me be sober. I ask God to help me be available for the people who's crossed my path. I ask myself, I ask God to help me be a good part of the day of anybody whose lives I touch. And that's it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really not interested in anything else. Yeah. 
That's beautiful. I, uh, this morning before I came here to be with you, I, um, every morning I pray to God and I say, uh, something very similar to what I'm getting ready to tell you. And long story short, uh, my wife, uh, was in the, the, the utility room this morning, the laundry room where we keep the washer and the dryer and the dog food. And she's in there and she's making, uh, breakfast for the dogs. And I've got two beautiful golden retrievers and, uh, one's name's Bali and the other one's name is Brig and b-r-i-g and so they're sitting there staring at my wife making the food because golden retrievers love food and i walked in there i said hey i'm getting ready to go record this podcast with roy would it be okay if we prayed together before i left and she said the same thing she always says which is yes or sure mm -hmm. so um she stops preparing the dog food she turns around she wraps her arms around my neck and she looks at me and kisses me and then puts her head against my chest and I start saying the prayers together for our family. I said something like this. I always say something real similar to this. The first thing I always say out the gate is, God, please don't let me use any alcohol or drugs today. Please put me in a position where I can be of helpful use and service to another alcoholic and protect my family and help the Dallas Stars win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> That's, fine. That's what I say every day. And the freaking Stars last night lost in overtime round two game one versus the um, Seattle Kraken. So <laughs> we got a got another chance coming up on Thursday. So I want to talk a little bit more about sponsorship. Can you tell us how you're, let me ask you like this. Have you ever sponsored yourself for any extended period of time? And how did that work out for you? Yes. And not well. <laughs> okay. Tell me what that means. Go well, basically, basically, here's what you can do. Look, back over the last, look over the last 36 years of my life. And if you have a timeline, if you can imagine a timeline moving horizontally from left to right. Yeah. And they have the, the, the years 87, 88, 89 along this graph. And, uh, and you want to have two lines. You want to have one line being... Uh, has sponsors, sponsors himself. Where when I sponsor myself, the line drops that period, I sponsor myself, have sponsor, sponsors himself, and go right along. Yeah. And then put another line, good life decisions, bad life decisions. <laughs> good life decisions, bad life decisions, they kind of like almost to the day, they parallel each other, just keep moving along. Yeah. And that's uh, funny. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 when I got married, I, uh, I would I, I'd known my wife. I got married when we'd known each other for I think ninety days. I was sponsoring myself. Okay. Uh, whenever I quit jobs, I shouldn't have quit. Take jobs I shouldn't have taken. Sponsoring myself. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> just you know, just stuff buying things I shouldn't buy. You know. Yeah. Sponsoring yeah. myself. Buying things you barely. I can, I, can, I can justify if I was sponsoring myself. I can kind of justify. You know. Yeah. The thing like with Paul today, I mean, I don't, I don't really call him that often, you know. But we talk from time to time and keep up with what's going on in our lives. But, but we're at the point where, and I guess I'm at the point now is that I already know what he's going to say. Yeah. You know, so rather than bother him, I just say no to Roy a lot. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like I heard a, one of my pastors say, you know, you got to say no to Roy to say yes to God, you know, and uh, that's that's kind of that's one of the things I still have to contend with from time to time. I've never heard that. I got to say no to Roy to say yes to God. That's that's beautiful. I never heard that. Okay, let's talk about the desire to drink. Has the desire to drink or to use drugs again ever returned since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? Yes. 
um, example one, um, when I was uh, six years sober, yeah, yeah, about seven years sober, uh, I was uh, working, uh, I'd been with Outback Steakhouse when they'd started out. And every year they'd have awards for like uh, proprietor of the year. Yeah. And I'd gotten it about for the second time in 94, I'd gotten the award and they put my name in a hat and that's in the end up. I, I got to pick to go on a two week trip to Australia with people from the company, the president of the company and all these guys. Wow. Really cool deal, you know. And I'm seven years sober and I'm active in AA and uh, going to meetings and I have a sponsor at the time and all. But we go to Australia and uh, I land up, go up into Cairns, that's where we went first, up in, in uh, Queensland. And uh, Port Douglas Sheraton Resort and the group is going to be going out for dinner. And I'm in the lobby earlier waiting for people to show up. And... I'm uh, sitting at the bar. Nobody's there but me by myself, just kind of very quiet time. And, you know, in, in, this, in the book, in uh, chapters two and three, more about alcoholism and all they talk about that word, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly the thought occurred to me. I could say a Jack and Coke right now and I'm rolling. And the disease is telling me, you you're you you're a managing partner of a successful restaurant. You have a new car. You just bought a house. You've got all this stuff. We're good now. We're good now. And I realized that all I had to do was say Jack and Co. That's all I got to do, and I'll be off and running. And um, I thought for a moment. I said, I started to feel uncomfortable. So I went back to my room, grabbed the phone book, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. An hour later, somebody I never met, never seen before since this lady drove like 20 miles out of her way to come pick me up and take me to a meeting. What did you say when you called Alcoholics Anonymous? I told her I was a sober member from here from the States and I need a meeting. Did you tell me you were thinking about drinking? Yeah. Really? And they had, somebody got there. And so I sat there in this little meeting with about five or six people in this small, really small church, uh, one that you would see like in a Western movie or something, a little old, small, little white church out in the middle of its field. And uh, listened to them talk about the woman, talk about the alcoholics in her family. And I remember her saying uh, how she hates the bloody disease. And because uh, it's so devastating. And... Uh, so I didn't drink. A couple of days later, we flew into Sydney. And uh, in the city, I was able to find a meeting near my, my hotel and walk. And I went to a meeting. Had a great time. Hung out with people in AA while I was in Sydney. And uh, did things with my group as well that I was traveling with. The, the, the Sydney Zoo, which is incredible. And all these great stuff. But I but also got to see real life for people that on an everyday basis that live in Sydney through people in AA, you know, and they asked me, so they, they said, you know, we have a thing we call the meeting after the meeting. Would you like to have a coffee? I said, sure, you know. So much of this stuff was so, so familiar and all. But uh, that's, that's where I go, you know. And um, the other time 
was uh, that it came to me. Uh, my ki- my kids, what you know, as a result of divorce, a result of different things. Uh, when they my my two oldest were in um, going to high school, one in New Jersey and one in a boarding school in upstate New York, and uh, I went up there for a weekend and uh, to see them. And my son was graduating, and my daughter was have got a chance to visit with her. And uh, and it was a great experience. But then whenever I got on the plane to come back, I got in the airport in Newark to fly back. I just had this tremendous amount of sadness. I wouldn't say depression. It was just extremely sad because I was thinking, you know, this divorce and all this thing that's happened has robbed me from the opportunity to be around these kids in their high school years. And I was just... Really, just deep, deep sad. I get on the plane. How many years sobers did you have at this point? Probably, let's see, uh, over 20, 20, 20, 22, 23 years, somewhere in there. Okay, keep going. And, uh, and I got on the plane, and uh, they start talking about beverage service. There's a beverage menu in front of me, and I'm extremely just in a bad place. So I grab the beverage menu, look at it. Open it up. The first thing it says is Jack Daniels and Coke. And then it has the caption on it, America's Cocktail. And I was thinking, wow, when did that happen? I didn't know, I didn't know that. It <laughs> marketing. And, uh, and then you know, my next thought was not to have a drink. You know what my next thought was? How many will they sell me between here and Dallas? That was, that was where my mind went immediately. How many will they sell me between here and Dallas? And my next thoughts, that's not going to be enough. Now I'm looking at the guy next to me thinking, oh, what kind of con job can I do on this guy to get him to order some and I'll pay for him and I get to drink him? And then my next thought was, it's, I'm going back on a Sunday night. My sister's picking me up. God, I can't show up drunk, but is there a liquor store open? No, there's no liquor store open. I mean, how the wheels are moving. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get out of this. And uh, so I put the menu back, and I hated it. But, I, but the, once the phone took off, took off the, the plane took off, they said, you can turn on electronics again. Got my iPhone. I had, I think, a Clancy tape or something on my phone. Put it in my ears. Listen to Clancy all the way back to Dallas. Most miserable flight I've ever had in my life. Really? But that... But that uh, but that, that's what that's what my go-to was, and uh, and then you know by the time I got home and sleep tonight it was over, you know. So uh, it 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 can show up any time, you yeah. know. We talk about people like we consider heroic, like Rick. You know, Rick talked about he did like to walk in the Galleria, go for walks, and he decided he was walking one day and. And he thought for a second about it. He wanted to look at the TV to see what the score of a ball game was. He stuck his head in a bar say, and asked the bartender, what's the score of the game? And immediately he thought about, it's VO time. This guy had been sober 35 years. I mean, it's, it's never, I don't think it's ever going to go away forever. I think, I think the book's correct. Everything this book has said to me has been correct. We get a daily reprieve. Yeah. We get it. I I can say today, I, as the book says, I am an ex problem drinker. Okay, properly armed with the facts about yourself, and and what I but what I am is uh, but what I do have is a daily reprieve. 
I like this paragraph. It's my favorite paragraph in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the last paragraph on page 43, and it fits with what we're talking about right now. It says something like this. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. And I agree with that. And I don't know why that's my favorite paragraph in the big book. It kind of tells me if I was going to put a synopsis or an interpretation on those three or four sentences, it would tell me that there will come a time in the future where I will be tempted again and I will have no effective mental defense against that first drink. I've got to have uh, the defense of a higher power. And that's why I go to so many meetings and I'm high in the, uh, I'm a big, big fan of being of service to the program and praying and meditating and eating right and getting enough sleep and making sure my blood sugars are correct and my blood pressure is right. Cause I want to be in a position where if all of my human efforts and resources fail me, which the book tells me eventually at some point they will, then I can turn to my higher power and turn to God. And my insurance plan will be paid up with him and through him, through all the work that I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. So last question, and then we'll take a quick break. Are you cool with that? Mm -hmm. Okay, one more. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you have been sober? And what have you done to cope with it? The answer would be yes. And um, what I do, uh, you know, I, I, over the years, I've spent some time with therapists, um, and that's been beneficial to me. Uh, I have utilized resources from the church over, over, over the years for, for, for different things. Um, have you done medication for uh, for depression or anxiety? Have you tried that? And I, I in two thousand and seven, when I was still married, I went to a psychiatrist, and he uh, put me on Zoloft for a while, and uh, I tried it for like thirty, maybe sixty days, and just came to the conclusion this really isn't doing anything for me. So. Uh, I just, you know, it worked for certain people, but I just, I just, it just wasn't for me. I mean, I, th I think the things that did work for me, one of the things the psychiatrist talked to me about, I think that's noteworthy for alcoholics. Uh, he did the, had to do the, do the hypoglycemic uh, screening on me. And basically what they do, you fast the night before you go in in the morning, they, they prick your finger and get some blood and see what your blood sugar is. Then they have you drink an orange soda and then check your blood sugar and then check it every 15 minutes or so to see what happens. And one of the things that was beneficial I found out through him was this thing that he called reactive hypoglycemia. And basically, and I would, I've read other books too that would suggest that probably there's a lot of alcoholics that are have reactive hypoglycemia. Because basically what happens is this. You ingest sugar, like an orange soda. Your blood sugar spikes. Your body creates insulin. What's supposed to happen is your body's supposed to create insulin to bring your blood sugar back to a normal level. Okay? What happens in me is I get too much insulin. As a result, my blood sugar tanks. It goes below normal. 
And as soon as I go below normal, I start having the symptoms of somebody whose blood sugar is too low. And my brain immediately goes, let's get some more sugar. That's why you don't ever, you know, Rick P used to say, I can't have a donut. Because if that's you, we see the people all the time. God, he's, he just ate five donuts. Yeah. Is, is he a pig? No, because he's, his blood sugar is messing with his mind is what's going on. Yeah, it's spiking and then dipping. And, and, spiking. and so what I learned from them was I, I really need to try and avoid that kind of stuff. As far as what I consume, it's a good idea for me as far as carbs go to eat uh, complex carbs, more than simple carbs, brown, brown rice as opposed to white rice, because the, the complex carbs break down into sugar, but they do it at a very slow rate. Mm-hmm. So you get a gradual feed, feed of sugar into your blood. Mm-hmm. As, as At least this was, I'm not a medical person, so I might listen to saying I'm all wrong. I don't know. No, you're right. <laughs> but, 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 that's, but, that, but that's what happens. I mean, so, so that's a part of the, uh, you know, physical and medical knowledge I need to have of myself to know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. You know? are, are you pre-diabetic or type two diabetic? Not at this time. No. Okay. I just recently, I get a, I get a checkup three times a year. Uh, my blood, all of my blood work looked really good here recently. So, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Everything you just said was correct. Cause I've been doing a lot of research on it and everything that yeah. I've discovered. Right. I'm not a doctor, but I, sometimes I feel like I am. Uh, <laughs> I watch Grey's Anatomy. Isn't that good? <laughs> I know a lot of stuff from that show. Can you select and talk about any one of the 12 steps that you would like to highlight and discuss? Sure. Uh, these days, um, I'm, uh, I'm really, really uh, zeroing in on step 12. And uh, you, Will you read that one real quick for the listeners? Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. And if you read in the 12 and 12, the, uh, the first line says, the joy of living is the theme of AA's 12th step. And at this point in my life, you know, I'm coming up on being 71 years old, 36 years sober now, father three, uh, son 27, daughter 26 this year, another son 20 this year, 21. And uh, I'm really becoming aware of that, you know, I'm in good health, but I'm aware of the fact that, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. And so where do I want to spend the time in my life today on each day? And uh, I'm really into this whole thing about joy. You know, our book says that we are, uh, uh, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And I have to be kind of careful with that happy word because sometimes I think things are going to make me happy that, that I really don't need, you know. Uh, uh, new shoes might make me feel happy today, but being day, debt-free gives me joy, <laughs> You know, uh, being available for the people in my life today brings me joy. Uh, Being being a a positive influence on this world and in in the people I come in contact with on a daily basis brings me joy. The simple things in life bring me joy, and I think I think that's that's what really the 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 twelfth step is about. Whenever I'm I'm doing work in Alcoholics Anonymous, when I'm seeing people get well, uh, that's 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 joy. And joy is not. And what I've learned is that joy really has very little to do with how much money I'm making or where I'm working or what kind of car I drive or any of this other stuff. 
You know, joy is joy comes from my relationship with people. Uh, I heard a guy years ago say about uh, to this subject. He said before Alcoholics Anonymous, he used people and loved things. What we've learned here is to love people and to use things. We talked about Rick a good bit, and uh, Rick's sister after his death said said that about Rick. Said some people invest in hedge funds, some people inv- invest in businesses. Rick invested in people, and that's why he's going to be getting quoted fifty years from now. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, because the the the, the influence goes on, and. Uh, and and there's really no area of my life that I think that is truer than my role as a dad, which for me is the most joyful and the most fun thing I've ever been in my life is being a dad. I mean, <laughs> it's like uh, if you're new, you're coming in, I will just tell you, you do not want to miss being a sober parent because it is the best. I, that can give a lot of people hope out there that I think that are listening to the show that are still drinking and <laughs> thinking about coming in and they know they might not be hitting all of the uh, gold stars and check marks as parents due to the fact that they're dr- actively drinking, uh, but they're still listening to sober shares. <laughs> they're in the neighborhood. They're circling mm-hmm. around the airport of Alcoholics and all. So we encourage you to land, come on in and uh, we, we promise you that you will be a better sober parent than you will be an active drunk. Let's talk about why going to meetings is important to you, either virtually on Zoom, which is teleconference style, or electronically, or in person. I like, uh, you know, we've gotten to the Zoom deal a lot with this uh, COVID thing, and uh, I still tune into Zoom uh, in the mornings a lot of times, uh, unless there's a schedule conflict. It's important for me to be around people in the room because one of the things that brings me joy is alcoholic laughter and if you say something funny on zoom you don't hear anybody laugh because <laughs> they're all mute i never thought about that i mean you know the thing is and, and it's, it's so important to me i mean that, that, that there's a warmth that 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 comes along with alcoholic laughter that you know i just that you can only have if you're sitting in the room with people, you know. I've never and, heard anybody say that. And we, and, and what's so great is that you know, you see, like, like you know, people listen to this, for instance, you know. Uh, I talk about peeing a car, and you know, people, other people are go, "That's horrible," you know. And I talk about an AA meeting, and everybody starts roaring, and laughing. Yeah, yeah. Because they've done it themselves, probably, you yeah, know, yeah. or like, contemplated. Ah. You know, it's great. <laughs> They're like, ah, yeah. They're like, that's terrible, but ha ha. <laughs> what life situation are you currently struggling with that the 12 steps have been able to help you navigate? What's going on right now with you that the AA is helping you with? I think just, just helping me keep my priorities straight, you know? And, and once again, I mean, the, the, the focus on the things in life that bring me joy and not the things that might be certain whims or whatever, you know? And, uh, and, uh, that, that includes, um, you know, uh, being available with the guys I'm working with. Seems like I've kind of had a, a new crop of sponsees show up lately, and uh, and and that's really really neat to see, uh, you know, because what it does for me, it's like uh, I have one of the guys. I told him I wanted to read uh, chapter two. There is a solution. And so I think, well, you know, I told him to read it. Might be good for me to read it again myself. <laughs> and, 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 and it's interesting how after all these years, right. 
uh, all these years that, that that I can read things that I've been reading. I got this book here. I've been thirty six years old, and, and I can read things in it that 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 will stand out to me more than they did in the past. And uh, and it's it's and the big book for me is really stays continues to stay fresh for me. Um, I I. Uh, I think it's 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 just it's such it's such a neat thing. And what's really amazing about this is to me, one of the things that made it me is that, you know, I'm sitting here for thirty six years and I'm not wired for this. I wasn't wired to be like this. I mean, I used to joke I could have a bumper sticker honk if you employed Roy, you know, because it's I mean, it's not like it's not like I stick stick to diets or stick to exercise programs, whatever, for a while. But somehow or another, for 36 years, I've done this and I continue to enjoy it. You know, it brings me it still brings me all as, as a great source of joy in my life. Are you still affiliated with the VA through your recovery from alcoholism? And do you specialize in work with and by sponsoring guys that are veterans that may have PTSD or anything like that? And I feel like after you, I want you to answer that, but I want you to also answer it into the fact, especially if you address the PTSD portion of the question is, I feel like maybe you had PTSD from your childhood. Probably so. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I think the, uh, I, I, as far as guys in, that are veterans, uh, they come across a path from time to time. Uh, for about about three or four years, some years back, I went to about a three or four year period where I was every ninety days. The, the treatment program at the VA they changes out every ninety days a new group, and I was going there telling my story about every ninety days, and I did that, and I made some connections with guys from time to time. There's some different people kind of involved with running that now, and plus with COVID and all the thing kind of changed, but uh, but I keep myself available. For, the, for guys, uh, I don't try to specialize with veterans. I mean, if, if someone comes and asks me to be their sponsor, I, I say yes. And uh, and uh, often, you know, we as we know, they you never hear from them again. Or the first time you tell them to read the book, then they never hear from them again. Maybe they're not ready, or maybe they like somebody else better. But uh, you know, it's one of the things that's important to know about sponsorship. It was Otto used to say, "It's a." A successful sponsor-sponsor relationship is successful by definition if the sponsor stays sober. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's it. You know, if, if well, I'm, I'm betting a thousand percent. I mean, like because I've had guys I sponsored before that 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 sponsored for a while and they relapsed and and then they then they get recovery they get and stay sober and they come to me later and apologize yeah yeah well, I apologize that man i'm sorry if i wasted your time you don't yeah. waste my time i stayed sober bro yeah you know? yeah, yeah they're so, like sorry i let yeah. you down or sorry i lied to you <laughs> <laughs> like, dude i've had them roll up on me hard like that before and they're like quigs i want to let you know i lied to you <laughs> I was like, what? You're like, all that eight step, nine step bullshit. I didn't do none of that. Dude. I just didn't go. go. I didn't go tell anybody. I'm sorry, dude. Not that that's what we're supposed to do. Um, do you have any complaints about the AA program or any parts of it that you think should be changed? Not really. No, I think, I think, you know, I think, I think here's, here's what I say, you know, is that one of the things that I've learned over the years and this kind of relates to the, my, the, my religion, my, my religious life, et cetera, is that when it comes to AA, it's a good idea for me to leave my convictions at the door. What do you mean by that? You know, I might, you know, 
political conviction, religious convictions. Okay. Just leave that stuff at the door. That's a lot not of your that's, opinions. That's the, my opinions are, are worthless in here. You know, yeah. uh, that was years ago when I was down. I lived down in Fort Lauderdale for for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Second, third year of sobriety, and I got lassoed into being an alternate GSR. So I go to this meeting with this old timer, and I'm watching these this GSR meeting. They have in in a in South Florida where they have like in a gym at a Catholic school and they have 500 people there that are represented as all these A groups in Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, Miami, et cetera. And uh, I'm watching people get so worked up about what's going to, what are you going to do with this extra 50 bucks? I mean, like veins popping in their neck, they're yelling and screaming, you know? So we leave and the old timer says, well, what did you think? I said, man, I think that's ridiculous. I run restaurants. We have management meetings. We go one, two, three, cha, cha, cha. We get to make decisions and move. I said, these people are sitting there getting ready to get almost violent over things that are just inconsequential. He looks at me. He says, well, you missed the point. I said, what's the point? He said, well, they're not drinking. That's the point. <laughs> so, yeah, they're focused on something different. Uh, yeah, it's, it's keep, yeah they, they can't, they're not going to go drink while they're pissed off about what we're going to do with the extra 50 bucks. Oh, so. my God. I've been in some long group conscious meetings talking about what are we going to tell the landlord? <laughs> what are our expectations? with Going for like 25 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. It's a lot. Um, the only person that's ever answered that last question I asked you about, if you think you have any complaints about the AA program or think there's parts of it, that should be changed. The only person that ever answered that question was Bobby B on episode 63. So if you actually want to hear somebody that has some opinions yeah, or thoughts on I, that. Actually, I listened to him last night. I yeah. couldn't believe it, dude. Yeah. I, I, I stopped asking that question for a while because the first 41 people I asked said no. They're, they didn't want to be controversial or they yeah. didn't have ideas. And I asked Bobby and he was immediately started talking. I was like, oh my God, he's the first person that's going to answer yeah, this know. question. But I agree with I know his answer. What he said has been echoing in my head for the last couple of weeks at what he said. And it, uh, anyways, if you want to hear somebody answer that question, roll backwards one episode to Bobby B episode 63. Right. Let's talk about the promises in the program. I don't necessarily want to read the nine step promises out loud. We've done that on this podcast several times, but there are several promises contained in the program, Alcoholics Anonymous, some negative, some positive. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on the promises and, and how they've manifested themselves in your life? Well, they, for me, they, the, most of the time they happen without me even realizing they're happening. I mean, I, it's like I look in the rearview mirror. Had an experience you know, when I was five years sober. I was in Arlington, and uh, I was going to a church. And I had some dates. I dated a girl for a while who had been to a graduated from a theological seminary. It was actually a, a minister. Okay. And uh, she's, and I'm five years sober, and we're dating. And she is... Uh, which is really bizarre because five years before that I was rolling out of the strip club drunk and ready to die. And now I'm sober, member of, sober five years, member of a church and dating a girl who's gone to graduated from seminary. And we're talking about our spiritual journeys, having a conversation. So we're sitting in my apartment and I pulled out the big book and I started reading through things in the big book, just kind of, kind of like giving a thumbnail sketch. Of my, of my of my story and my program of recovery and then I read these promises and I just broke down I just broke down 
because I realized this is my life here. This has happened. And it happened because I showed up. I didn't pick up a drink. I did things people tell me to do the best of my ability at that time. You know, I was told uh, when I did, did the third step that what does that mean for me? It said, said and it's basically means the same thing to me today, that going forward, it's not my life anymore. I'm in the legwork business, guys, and results business. And I just do the legwork, man. That's what I do. What's going to be the legwork today? You know? Yeah. And what I love about that, that way of living, it gives, it gives my life a tremendous sense of adventure. I love the fact that I don't know what's going to happen today. Yeah, your days are very different. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I know that whatever's going to happen, God's got my back. You know, God, that, that all I need to do is be available to do the work that God wants to do with whoever I will come across today. And I don't need to figure anything else out. Most, it's so freeing not to try and figure your life out. What a waste of time that would have been for me. But I did that, and then one day, I mean, I'm sitting there reading, going, this stuff's happened. I usually recognize this stuff has happened in the rearview mirror. Yeah. You know? That's, that's what happens. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do yeah, for and ourselves. Like, and, you, and, you just, and you realize that I am, I'm just not that guy. That guy that I was when I walked in here. I don't, you know, I can, I've talked to you about, you know, my, my drinking years and stuff and the traumas and all this stuff. But the thing is, is that, um, is that, is that it's, it seems like it was somebody else. Cause I'm want to talk about it. Cause it's, that's not who I am today. Yeah. I'm a very different guy today. Like you were talking about you. If I told you, you, you're, you're like, you've known me, you've known me from being 25 years sober plus. Yeah. And you, now you're going, you know, wow, this guy, yeah, you, this you, guy was out there. He was off the chain. Where, where I got sober in Southern California and San Diego County, they always used to talk about, and I don't hear it that much around here, but in San Diego all the time, people would talk about in meetings, they would talk about paint the barn and the crops will grow. And I was like, paint the barn and the crops will grow. I was like, what are you talking about? I know. And I finally started to, to delineate what they were talking right. about. And I was early in sobriety when they kept saying that. And I was like, what are you? And I pulled this old timer aside. And uh, I said, hey, what, what are you talking about? Paint the barn and the crops will grow. You said that twice a week. He goes, Mike, focus on the work. Focus on the program. Focus on the work and give yourself the gift of time. Because it took you a long time to get farkled up enough in here to where you were so damaged and so full-blown alcoholic and so full-blown drug addict that you had to come here. And guess what? It's going to take you a very long time to get unfarkled. Right. It's going to take a long time. So paint the barn and the crops will grow. Focus on the work, not on the results. And I promise you, in the long run, you will be okay. Do what we tell you to do in here. And then he started to talk about the analogy of peeling an onion. You know, there's mm -hmm. layers to an onion. When you cut into an onion, it's not, it's not as, as it appears when you look at it. There's many, many layers. And that's what it's going to be like for you. And the last thing he said to me before he got in his Cadillac and drove off, he said, uh, there's many, many layers to, to the recovery. And there's many, many layers to your sickness. And we've got to, you know, uncover, discover, and discard your right. old life. And we, little by slow, what we've got to do is we have to release the old you and the old parts of your life and the old ways of thinking that no longer service you and replace them with different things. And we have plenty of different things to replace it with. We have new ways of thinking for you, new ways of thinking, uh, new ways of acting and new ways of behaving and new ways of talking. 
And when you get really minute down to it in long-term sobriety and get into the minutia like you and I are, we start looking at new ways of eating and new ways of exercising and mm-hmm. new ways of being of service and just stay stay in, in the recovery vein. Mm-hmm. And he, I was just so happy for him to explain what he meant by paint the barn and the crops will grow. And there give you yourself go. the gift of time. Right. Do you, you, it takes a long time, right? Sure this does. recovery takes forever. Yeah. And well, I'm not finished. Me either. I'm not finished. Uh, and I know yeah. I won't be. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a process where right. I'm just kind of rolling, right. I'm rolling through it and I'm walking the disease or I'm walking the path of recovery with you with Scott D, with Stan M, all of our friends up at the Preston Group, we're all a group of people walking on the recovery path, and it's fun. Let's crack into your big book if you feel like it. Is there anything inside the literature that you would like to point out, read, share with us? Any? I already read the last paragraph on page 43. Is there anything in your big book that you want to point out? On page 164, uh, last year when I hit 35 years, um the line that stood out to me was we realize we only know a little. And it was really interesting to me that I've been here 35 years to really come to understand how little I know. (laughs) And really that's very freeing to me. Right. It's very, it's very freeing that, you know, I'm just, there's, there's, I don't need to try and figure my life out in order for my life to be okay. <laughs> my life is okay. Yeah. My life, God's always been here. God's always been available, whether I'm wanting to be a participate in a relationship with him or not. God's always been there. The steps gave me a chance. We talk about the traumas and as a kid and all this stuff. See, all those things fed me lies about myself and the world. And I believed them because of the pain. And, I, you know, and what I had to learn was that was all a lie. That's not who I am. You know, whenever, and if I struggle with something today, I talk to Paul and say, you know, this makes me feel like this, like I'm this or I'm that, you know, bad, this bad, that bad. He looks at me and goes, Roy, you're a child of God. That's who you are. That's your identity. You're a child of God, man. Ignore this other stuff that the world's trying to tell you. You know, and what people might be trying to tell you. That's who your core, my core identity today is real. I'm real clear with. I'm a child of God. I'm an alcoholic in recovery. And uh, I, I want to continue to grow. You know, it's interesting for me now. I mean, I want to, I'm 70 years, be 71. I can't believe I'm be 71 in July. And, uh, and, uh, and I can honestly tell you, I've never enjoyed my life more than I enjoy it right now. You know, you know, I hear people talking about, well, I want to be comfortable in my own skin. Not me. I, I, I want joy, man. I want, I want to be thoroughly, I don't want to be just comfortable. I want to really be enjoying my existence. And I do that now more than pro- I think I ever have. I think because maybe I'm free of a lot of things and, and just I'm not really that concerned about a lot of things anymore. And uh, uh, some people look like, uh, you know, retirement age, 70s, is slowing down and stuff. I got a lot of things I'm looking forward to in life. You know, I want to live as long as I can. Um, there's a, one of my favorite uh, musicians that passed away was Rich Mullins, and I love one of his lines here where he said, I hear people talking, saying they're worried about my soul, but I'm telling you, I'm going to keep rocking until it's sure, I'm sure it's my time to roll. That's where I'm going, you know. <laughs> That's where I want to be. 
That's funny. I never heard that song before. That's good. So let's talk about this question. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question that was sent in by one of our listeners. This is not something that I came up with. One of our, e- one of our listeners emailed us this next question. What was one of the things that AA asked you to do in early sobriety that you thought was crazy, but, ended, but it ended up working out for you well anyway? Oh, first day. First day. Talking to these guys at the meeting, and the, after they made it clear to me that they really don't drink at all anymore. And, uh, and I, I was like, well, what's the trick? What's the trick? I mean, do you have a secret handshake? What's going on here? And uh, they said, well, we don't know what you believe or don't believe, but just in the morning, get on your knees and ask God whatever you think is to help you stay sober. And if you don't drink that day, at the end of the day, get on your knees and say thank you. <laughs> and I just thought, that's so lame. That's the, I, got, I got serious problems here. That's all you've got? Yeah, yeah. That's all you've, this is all you've got. Yep, this is it. Yeah. You know, this simple, AA in its simplest form, this is it, you know? Yeah. I just thought it was just ridiculous. Yeah. And I remember uh, Tad, you know, Tad, our friend yeah. Tad, he, I remember him saying something uh, in his story around this portion of the story. <laughs> they, they, he came in uh, through Green Oaks, they explained everything to him, and they're like, you know, maybe in nine months or a year or two years, you might get your daughter back and things. And he's like, nine months? <laughs> nine months? He was trying to get shit straightened out by like next yeah. Tuesday. Well, but I was, I was, but, problems. The, but I was desperate enough to do it, to try anything. Yeah. So I did it. And yeah. like I said, then about three weeks later, I was kind of like, that was the last time I thought about drinking, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of things you know, we, we hear that has seemed like it has nothing to do with what our problems are, but you know, they, uh, but they, they sure does seem to work. I've got two more questions left. I want to talk about your kids right now. Okay. I want to talk about your relationship with your kids, but I also want to tie that in with something that you said about two and a half hours ago. You said that you were at a bowling alley when you were 18 years old and you told this girl that you were at the bowling alley with when you were 18 you said to her verbatim, I don't think anyone is ever going to love me. That's what you told her. Right. Now you're 70, almost 71, and I want to know, how has that played out? I don't think I'm going to find anybody ever is going to love me. You said that when you were 18 to that girl at that bowling alley. So tie that in, if you can, tell your relationship with your kids. Take that any way you want to take it. Sure. Well, um, the... You know, di- divorce was tough on me, tough on my on th- their mom, uh, and it was very tough with them. And it, there is nothing that 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 is just more distasteful, or that, that's more miserable for me than participating in something that's bringing pain to the kids. But one of the things I did do was um, I made it clear with my kids that. At, at the front and people say they'll, they'll say this and never not do it but I feel like I really follow through on um, on that I was not divorcing them and uh, I moved forward in the last I guess 14 15 years now of uh, I, I don't miss anything you know I don't miss games I don't miss activities uh, 
I, I get them to church. I do the things that they need to do. Uh, their mom, um, anytime she asks me to do something for them, I do it. If it unless it's totally impossible, I'm very I stay very active and involved in their lives, and uh, and as a result, the, re, re, the relationship I have with my children um, is so different from what my, me and my dad was. It's, 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 it's like it's unrecognizable. They're, my children today um, are, are talk with regularly, are see regularly. The other day, my daughter and I just went over to her place. She's married now. She married a great guy. She's married a couple of years. And we just go over there, and I, I hang out with her, and we just kind of talk about life and what's going on. I really enjoy my kids because they're 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 the they're the most interesting people I know. Uh, my oldest son is uh, his sense of humor. He I tell him he's the most most intelligent guys I know, and he he just has great insights on the world and and life and all. And uh, he's very funny. I mean, he he does he does some impressions that are unbelievable. I mean, he's just a hilarious guy and very intelligent. My daughter is just a delight. You know, and and I, my my approach to my kids has been I, my starting point with them is they're probably smarter than me, <laughs> okay. and and I think they are. You know, and uh, and my my daughter says brilliant stuff to me, like uh, especially people that deal with obsessive and compulsive shopping and stuff. She says, well, yeah, she said to me like uh, no life decisions after nine p.m. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, where'd she come up with that? But she just does. I mean, like, she she watches when she watches TV. She watches things that that she doesn't really watch news. She watches things because it doesn't really matter anyway. And she watches things that makes her life better, you know. And then my youngest son Eli is just a uh, he's he's in a military school right now, and he's he's wants to pursue a career in the military, and he's just a uh, he he. I, that, there's not he's he's like. I, sometimes I'm not sure we're related, you know. I mean, he's very focused on things. Like uh, he he's in excellent health. He's in excellent condition. Uh, if there's people in his life that are that are friends, like in high school, that are getting into inappropriate, he deems inappropriate things. He just quits hanging out with them. I mean, he's just he's just he's just really incredible. I mean, he just makes good lights. He he'll go get a burger, but he doesn't he doesn't drink Coca Cola or Diet Coke. He drinks water. Yeah. He, I mean, he's just, he's just in him. I mean, he has great instincts. He's very disciplined, you know, and, uh, and it's just great. And they, we, our time when we're together is, is we always enjoy it, you know, and I, and my kids treat me in a way that, um, says that they, uh, that they really love me and they respect me. The thought dad hates me has never crossed their mind. And if all I did in my life was have kids that never thought that, then I'm, uh, I'm saying mission accomplished, you know. Why don't you do this? Yeah. It's that card. I, I, I handed him a card I want him to read from. And this is a card that my kids gave me last year at my 35 years sober. You can read that out. Okay, so I'm holding in my hand a little four-inch tall by three-inch wide blue card. Congratulations, Dad. You are such an inspiring example to us all. We are so happy to have you in our lives the luckiest people to have a man like you as a father. Happy birthday. We are so proud. 
So tell me about when they gave this to you and what that meant. Paint a picture for us what that looked like. Well, they showed up for the for the uh, a birthday night, at, you know, for, for my 35th year. And uh, went out to a nice restaurant afterward, and they gave me the card. Okay. We went to a nice restaurant, and they picked up the tab. That was what? pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, it was like when I got that, that, that it was kind of like the movie of my life. Hey, man, roll the credits. This is it. <laughs> roll the credits. This is great. You know, drop the curtain. This is great. 35 years. And, and that's how it felt. But then the next day, I just realized, I said, it's time for the next chapter. This is where my life is now. It's time for the next chapter. Let's see what's going to be coming down the pike. The reason I wanted to share that today is, is I don't want to give anybody the impression that from an egotistical standpoint, I consider myself to be dad of the year or Mr. Wonderful, anything at all. I think, I think the story here is that when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a part of me that maybe wanted to have a chance of being that dad and maybe wanted to be, I had no idea how to do it. Okay, You didn't if, have the tools then. I, if, if I don't walk into Alcoholics Anonymous, these kids don't exist. If I don't stay sober, their, their dad experience never happens. It's all, been this, it's all been God doing this or this program. That's all of it is. And what I would want to say to anyone new or struggling that future that was waiting for me that I couldn't see, that future's waiting for you right now. If you're, in, if you're listening to this and you're a week in or you're two weeks in or you're a couple of years in and your divorce is happening and you got life's coming apart, stay the course. Stay the course. Do the things we all know we need to do. And, and that feeling you get at those moments, okay, the feeling I get when those kids give me that card the feeling I get, the emotion I get whenever I see them and I'm with them, you can't buy that anywhere. There's no drink and there's no drug in the world that can give you that feeling. They don't sell that at Walmart. No, sir. <laughs> they don't sell it at Neiman's either. <laughs> nope. That's true. So if you're out there and you're listening to us and you're drinking and you're drugging and you're lost and you don't know what the next right thing to do is, come see us, come join us and allow us to love on you until you can love yourself. We got plenty of good stuff to spread around. Uh, we don't get paid any, we're, you know, we're not, we don't get paid residuals on this. There's no pyramid scheme. We're not trying to get you to get out there and get donations for AA. This is not some kind of weird deal. This is just something that has worked for Roy and has worked for myself. And we're here to talk about that today. And I want to agree wholeheartedly with everything you said today. And I'm a father of a 13 year old son. And guess what? Uh, he would not exist if I did not get sober and I did not, uh, become healthy enough to attract his mother to me because <laughs> she would not have been attracted to the old Mike. And we were able to have a baby and now he's had a good experience, you know, so far <laughs> with the first 13 years with me, I've been able to uh, supply love and consistency and safety and kind of just show him how to be a man, a sober man. And he's aware of Alcoholics Anonymous and he goes to meetings with me and he comes to birthday night with me and he sees me pick up my chips and I love him and respect him and he loves me and respects me too. And the same thing with my wife. I'm just ecstatic to be married to her. Um, is it easy? Probably not. Is it hard? Probably so. But I just keep grinding through it and I really wanted to thank you for coming to join us today. Is there anything 
else that you want to say? Any final parting thoughts for our audience? Or do you feel like you've closed it up pretty nicely? I think that was a nice thing you said a couple minutes ago. But if you have anything else that you want to kind of like deliver to the audience, now would be a great time to do that. Just to finish with three things that I uh, that are important to me every day as far as in this ch- chapter of my life that I'm going into. Three things that are important to me. One, to do everything I can to help end generational curses. Two, to live in a way that my children are proud of me. Three, to demonstrate to people, whoever it might be, that a sober life is worth it. It has been a blast talking to you. All the things, most I'd say 90% of what you told me today, I did not know. And that's why I love this show and I love this podcast. I get to even know my friends better than I do. So I'm super excited. Thank you for joining us here on Sober Shares. It's been a moving experience and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. So one more time, I want to thank John Kirtland, Amanda D, Red S, Stan W, David S, Colin H, and Deborah S for visiting our website, SoberShares.com, and clicking on the donate button and helping us move this project forward. We'll see you guys on the next episode of Sober Shares. And remember, if nobody's told you they love you today, I do. I love you. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us.